Good morning and welcome back to the other faces. Welcome to Scraps and Scrolls and another of our Winds of Winter preview chapters. We have finally come to Theon. We're returning to the north. We're getting cold. We have to watch out for the snow. Yes, after so long of waiting, we're finally there. Hello and welcome. I am your jolly green giant, your jack of all glades. I'm here to take you through this next chapter on our preview journey, nearing the end as we are. And it is indeed my pleasure to welcome you back. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for joining us. It's always great to see you all here. The big question on your minds, I'm sure, how much will I be able to talk about the NBA playoffs before you will make me get on with a song of ice and fire instead? Not many seconds last time. How much can I resist this time around? Well, actually, it's been a little while since we've recorded last time i spoke to you i was talking about game three lakers and suns what would happen there well since then the result has been given goodbye lebron <laughs> you are off banished to the shadow realm you and your lakers the suns progressed and in fact as i talked to you now they've done it again they've swept the denver nuggets they've progressed to the conference finals and what a joy that team is to watch now in fairness i have nothing against the denver nuggets very good team i very much like Jokic, but it's still great fun to be had can i push it a bit more no i'd better not i suppose i'd better talk about these books instead Maybe I can very, very quickly say, let's go Bucks, let's go Jazz. But okay, you caught me. Hands up. I'll get back to what I'm supposed to be doing. Even if I will point out that some of you have been saying you quite enjoyed a little bit of basketball talk here at the beginning. So don't blame me, everybody. Blame those people. They're enabling me because, yes, I could go on about it for ages and ages. Maybe one day I'll just talk about that all the time. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? But before then, I am welcoming you back to the aisle here. And I'm speaking to you from a scorching hot England. Summer is here, everybody. I'm hoping you can hear the so energy that's been transferred into my skin and now into my words and therefore into your ears. I am very much a sun-based person. It comes from being born on the hottest day on record at the time. And though we will be visiting the cold and the frigid north, I'll be drawing on the heat to power me through. Yes, where we live does look absolutely gorgeous when the sun is out. It's green everywhere, blue skies. It does mean that I have to get up even earlier. Doggy needs to be out by, well, 7am is even a little bit too late. That's how quickly it's getting hot. And she is a jet black collie, so we need her out before the sun rises too high. But that's okay. It's still lovely to be out. This means I can come back and work on this for you even more quickly. So I've got the sun. Hopefully you've got the sun wherever you are. We can all share in the energy together for this great, great chapter. Before we get to that, only a few notes. Firstly, let's say a, a thank you and a big well done to Aziz and the Share because they've now wrapped up the Winds of Winter preview chapters. Fion, as you know, came a bit later than expected, but that came out and then Aziz had Nina on this past weekend to do a bit of a Winds of Winter review. So that was pretty cool. I'm sure you're all there listening along or watching along anyway. But hey, big marker. So applause all round. Well done, everybody. We still have have a couple of weeks left behind on our schedule but we're not too far away either so it's big big stuff and talking of big big stuff well 100 questions that sounds like big stuff to me and myself and emily of the eerie we're going to be recording part three of 100 questions of the winds of winter this week i expect so that'll be with you not too far in the future it's been great interacting with you about previous questions you've been sending in some answers you've been sending even more questions in which is always fun this time out we're going to be talking some hodor and shireen how things might be different there we're going to be talking a lot about vengeance and uh, the whole theme of that where that will go in wins we might talk some loris tyrell we might be talking some euron trinkets just to fit in with last week's the forsaken episode so whenever that comes around be ready that will be appearing in your feed before long and hopefully you can give some more opinions on your different answers as well in the meantime we recently released sporkle spectacular one of our icebreaker episodes with emily where she and myself went head to head over the opening sentences of a storm of swords for each pov chapter i'm sure you know the score of how that 
that works by now it's just a nice quick fun episode for you to listen to and even better it's something you yourselves can have a go at links included in the episode description i'm sure i'll tweet it out for you as well so get on there have a go see what percentage you get and then you can compare to how me and emily did it's not easy by any marks but fun was had and that's the main thing it's great to be doing that kind of format again hopefully we'll find some time to do it again in the future so you've got stuff to listen to you've got stuff to look forward to it's all happening here on the aisle of course and in fact well if i'm going to talk of busy 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 let me tell you here i know i say this every week and i do because it's true but the interaction the message levels on patreon especially this week have been through the roof everybody's talking to me about all manner of things well i do want to say thank you to all patrons who have been sending messages all patrons in general of course but so many of you have been interacting and just talking about the podcast talking about the chapters we're going through just talking about anything because we're genuinely friends with you and it's awesome so i encourage all of you whether via patreon or not you don't have to be a patron to get in touch we receive plenty of emails and comments and stuff like that as well and that's always great but we really have been getting some very 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 nice messages from patrons this week and i want to say a special thank you and with that in fact we're really seeing an uptick in other people signing up to patreon and increasing their tier level as well which i think is actually even more impressive in a way a new patron could come on board and go to a certain tier and they might not know what they're going to get yet but someone who's been around and has had the patreon experience and thinks this is great so great i'm going to move up a tier that's even better endorsement that's even better feedback for us so that's really really great thank you to everyone who's done that and to everyone who's signing up new and everyone who's listening and downloading and all that great stuff but yeah the patreon is doing really well and obviously that's very very good news it makes me feel very good about the the work that goes in and i'm sure emily would say the same to that end we have more people to shout out today yes it sounds like i'm going to be doing one of those times where i go down a tier for the shouts but i'm not i'm not this is just all these people who are in the higher tiers now so i'm going to be doing some welcome obviously we are going to know some of the names and some of these names might change as people get back to me and uh, have some of these fun titles but for now let me give the biggest biggest of thanks to cat vp eric f gardener queen lomas knight rider survivor of the yin sleepover grizzly m glenn t agan the sixth lord commander namian darklin km brandy t crystal f devora l and Archmaester June, healer of the lesser poxes. Thank you, one and all. It is indescribable the amount of support that you're offering and the amount of friendship that you give us. And I'm not going to go into specifics here on air, but I can tell you that some of these people I've just listed for you here are going beyond the pale in their donations, higher than our tier levels actually describe. So again, I can't even tell you how appreciated that is. I have messaged each of you, of course. I'm conversing with you regularly. But I want to say here in front of everyone, thank you. And again, I know I keep saying it, but me and Emily, we will be thinking of more benefits and rewards and goals and all these things we had to do that anyway now we obviously definitely have to do it because all these people are joining upper tiers and joining patreon in general so there will be more on offer if any of you want to look at that oh what a long list how lucky we are i'm going to do it again thank you thank you everybody so much appreciated okay i think that is just about everything out of the way let's tick them off i said thank you to patrons i said well done to history of westeros I've talked about how hot it is and how much I love it. Yes, I did talk a little bit about the playoffs. Should I talk more about the playoffs? No, okay, I'll resist. You've bent my arm. Let's talk about Theon because we have been waiting such a long, long time. Let's get down to it, shall we? 
Yes, you will all remember we were supposed to originally head to the cold of the north much earlier than this. I think it was, I don't know, was it a month ago? I know it was after a lane. It was supposed to be after a lane, but either way, we didn't. History of Westeros had some rescheduling. We did the same, so we synced up a bit better. But luckily, it is one of these preview chapters that is most definitely worth the wait. Don't you worry. We've had some of the best written chapters lately in Mercy and The Forsaken, which I hope you enjoyed. I certainly did. We've had those concerning some of the larger scopes in turn of the Targaryen return with Arianne. But I don't think it's a stretch to say that we are now finally coming to cover the storyline that the majority of us might have been most interested in the war for the north the war for our emotional center our emotional center of the whole story in winterfell the home and country of the starks where it began and where we all figure is very much going to end now i won't delve too deeply into those waters because that is something that we've covered to an incredible extent several times over and it's not really the focus of this specific chapter but it is still the area that we will return to there's no Starks in this chapter. All of that thinking is a long way off. All right, there might be a little bit of Stark talk at the end, but generally there's none of them. But this whole area we're talking about today is one that we've covered the most via John and Bran and Theon and Asher and even a little bit of Sam and Melisandre. We know how important this area is narratively from Dance of Dragons. We know there is an absolute ton going on in the north, both here and up on the wall. Only two storylines received more page space than John and Theon, and that was Tyrion and Daenerys. It's pretty damn major company, isn't it? We could not have been more invested back then. We knew how much was resting on it as we were taken through the events at Winterfell and Stannis's doomed march and, like I said, everything at Castle Black. There was so, so much to talk about. I know because we did five-hour episodes about it, so I remember, and hopefully you do too. We left all three of those plot points on major cliffhangers. John's death, that won't be addressed here today, but first-timers, well, they don't know that going into this chapter. That could well have come up. It just builds the tension even more, doesn't it? Stannis's assault, though, that was seemingly dead in the water, or the ice perhaps. We'll absolutely cover that. And of course, we had Theon appearing out of the snow, Jane Poole slash Aya in his hand at the end of Asher's final chapter to cap off the incredibly emotional storyline that we had throughout Dance from Theon, which, as we said at the time, is one of the strongest and most famous of all A Song of Ice and Fire. And in fact, actually, while I'm talking about increased messages and people giving compliments on Patreon, that is something that's come up recently. People saying how much they enjoyed that specific specific episode on Theon's final chapter where he rescues Jane and they get out and just the deep deep dive we had to do emotionally on that chapter which was not an easy thing let me tell you but we did it that was another was that five hours that was like four and a half hours that episode we went really really slogged through the mud on that one and well people were giving compliments on it so that's great in general of course but it's great to hear for this episode because it means the expectation the hunger to get at this episode this chapter is even higher. Theon, without argument, is one of our most important characters out of the preview lineup, and possibly even the one that we would most associate with dance. Tyrion is a strong contender, of course, but it's absolutely between him and Theon, I think, out of the people we have for preview chapters. That single book arc, Theon's I mean, just to bring it up again, is simply on another chart. It's famous across the fandom, and it's cited as some of George's strongest characterization and work in general. Certainly, when we list the things that make us think of A Dance with Dragons, Theon's arc is not going to be too far down the list. And in strict terms of the preview chapters that we're dealing with, you can make the argument that Theon does pip out Tyrion, given that we have a much longer more fully formed chapter today than we got from our lone Lannister and not only is it fully formed it is piping hot in terms of the sheer amount of topics we will cover in this chapter despite the fact that we never leave the single room which we find ourselves starting in in fact Fionn himself literally never moves so I suppose we finally have a rival to Sansa and her dressmaking back in storm there are so so many elements going into both the Winterfell camp 
campaign on both sides and what's happening elsewhere in the north. And we'll be treated to so many of them today because Fionn is very much going to return to his Fionn camera mode in this chapter. There will be long passages without so much as a thought from him. And that's not new. That was a key feature of his in Dance. And to put it simply, it's a requirement. There's too much going on. There's so much riding on what will happen next. And George, he just needs to update us a little bit. His only vehicle for doing so in this situation is either Fionn or Asher, and Fionn is much more better situated currently. But it does really make you think, all this stuff going on in the north, and so much to cover, yet George only gives us this lone, single preview chapter to whet our appetite for what again, might be our main focus for many many readers, given Dance's end. We have five preview chapters in Marine, we even get two in the Stormlands slash Dawn, but only one up here, with everything that we've got to cover? Well alongside telling us that we're likely to get the Battle of the Fire first, it makes you appreciate this chapter and this return to Fion even more. Speaking of, though we will cover plenty of politics for the area, or tactics for the war, while we will finally get our fill of Stannis and his campaign after waiting for so long without answers, this is still very much a chapter about Fionn, as much as he will be the camera. He will have his moments, don't worry, moments of emotion, moments of introspection. There will be the further weighing of his own soul with all his crimes now mixed with moments of heroism, and an inner debate that connects directly to that incredible complex and emotional storyline that we did have a blast dissecting. Again, like I say, difficult as it was. That Fionn has gone nowhere. This is still a damaged man, perhaps damaged beyond repair. Ramsay still lives in this chapter, even if he never appears. Indeed, the tension of a Bolton assault arriving at any time exists from beginning to end, and who better for Fionn to have debates about good and evil and justice with than Stannis Baratheon himself. Last time out with the Forsaken, we had an Aaron chapter that was really about Euron. Well, I wouldn't say it stretched to quite the same length here today, but Stannis is a major, major draw for this chapter. We will cover it in the text, of course, but remember, Stannis would be a major draw for us readers at the best of times, except we've been specifically denied basically any access to him whatsoever since he left Castle Black. Asher was able to give us very few tidbits because there wasn't a lot to give. The march stalled, Stannis holed up in his watchtower, and his army was left wondering what the hell he was going to do, and us with them. That was one of the biggest questions of all Dance, so it makes us even hungrier and moves this chapter ever up our most wanted list. We will see his reaction to what happened. We will have his opinion on what Fionn has done, and even better than that, we'll finally see Stannis make some moves to the future as the war restarts. Plans are made, teams are shifted, and we can't wait. Of course, the elephant in the room is that we've already been treated to the pink letter in Dance, so we've got no idea if any of those plans are going to come true, or if this whole chapter will end in disaster, and the pink letter will turn out to be valid. But it's probably a good idea to leave that bit of confusion for later on. While talking of possible futures, we get hints on that for several characters, not just this army, and chief among them is Fionn himself, as, towards the end of the chapter, we begin to cross over with the magical storyline again. And in such a way, I don't think any first-time reader would have expected, pointing us towards some major theories for both the immediate future and some ever-growing questions about what comes next. It is a doozy of a chapter. I'm super interested in this area, as you well know. Imagine the crime it would have been if we didn't get this and we were just entirely left in the dark. I think I have said this now about several of our preview chapters, especially the early ones, but this is the most linked to the dance plot in my opinion, and I think I said that as we made our way through our dance scraps and scrolls. Most likely, that's because it was probably meant to be a part of dance in the first place, so there you go, that makes sense. We've said that several times as well, but it's probably more true here than any other, considering that this chapter came out mere months after A Dance with Dragons was actually released. 
so we can assume it was a cut rather than super early inspiration for wins. Then again, maybe George was just writing some early wins alongside late dance to help with continuity. I know that's an idea that's come up a few times in relation to Dream, so hey, fingers crossed. In fact, this is the very first released chapter of The Winds of Winter, so it's even more ironic that it's wound up nearer to the end for our purposes. Last few things before we get going. This chapter today is 6,102 words long, so it's actually only about 500 shorter than Sansa, which I think was our longest one, I can tell, and they're all mixing into one another now, I struggle to remember. But after those early short ones, we've really hit the longer ones. So does that tell us something, that Fionn and Sansa and Aya's chapters are much bigger than other people's, or is there not much to look into? I mean, we could say maybe that's who George is going to be focusing on this time round. Are they just more important than wins? Uh, I wouldn't look too far into that because Tyrion, if you remember, was one of our shortest preview chapters. And I'm pretty sure he's going to remain important. It could be telling us that these chapters like Sansa and Aya will be less frequent than the others, like they were in Feast. And George is therefore packing in more information when he does get the chance. Okay, yeah, I could buy that. That's what makes a little more sense, especially with Fionn this time around. Or maybe it's just telling us about the pacing of the Battle of the Fire and that those chapters that we covered earlier on in our preview rereads are just going to get a lot more added into them before publication. Hmm, that would definitely make sense as well. Now, I don't think you need too much reminding of what's happened here. We've already covered it. Fionn came out of the snow in Ash's last chapter. There was the reunion. He was with Tychon Astorius. He was with the Ironborn. He'd been sent by Mors Umber, who had found him after jumping from the Winterfell walls. I think you've probably all got that cemented in your minds, to be honest. I could talk about that cliffhanger, because that was one of the biggest, really, of the whole book. A book that's not short of cliffhangers, by the way, but I think that's right up there. Probably only Jon beats it. What would happen with Fionn and Asha and what would happen in general with Stannis, that was one of the biggest things that we needed to discover. What happened to everybody? What happened to the war? What's going to happen next? Because it had stalled and we were so sure that it wasn't going to stall and something was going to happen, but it didn't. And we just needed some resolution. Well, we'll get some today, not all, but this chapter will definitely feed that hunger. So don't worry. I think then let's get started. Let's dive in. Let's head for the actual text of Fionn 1. 1, 2, 3, Fionn 1. First things first here, let's discuss the chapter title. Famously, and again with much discussion from yours truly, Fionn's chapter titles switched from his name to specific titles throughout Dance. First, it was Reek, then the Prince of Winterfell, then a ghost in Winterfell, and finally, for his last chapter, very, very symbolically, we were returned to Fionn as our chapter title. Now, we spent a lot of time looking at the choice of those titles from George based on what was happening to Fionn and the plot and what he wanted to represent, and more importantly, where he was in his own psyche. Clearly, the return to his true name at the end there synced up with his return to a form of his true self and the, the mental breakaway from being Ramsay's creature, Reek, when he finally summoned the bravery to do something, to do the right thing in terms of Jane. I remind you all of such here because that trend is apparently continuing into wins. This chapter is named Fionn, not something else, which is probably a cause for celebration. Now, this would be one of the very easiest things to change before publication, should George want to, so maybe it will be different when we actually open up the book, but we're going to take it at face value for now and be comforted by the fact that Fionn's fall or his journey through the snow with Jane hasn't reset him so far back as to need a title change. It would be very, very sobering if we were to open up wins and we get Reek 1, wouldn't it? But luckily, not so far. The progress he made to get to something close to his former self, at least, has apparently kept strong. That's the message we're getting at the beginning. No doubt we'll discover more on the intricacies of that as we go. So let's move past the chapter title and take a look at our first line, which we know to always be one of George's very best skills, his writing of such lines. In Marine, in the chapters we've covered so far, they were atmospheric. They were always focused on death. 
Makes sense, they were outside of battle. This time, George uses it as a hook, a tease, to get us very, very interested in what this chapter offers, because the first identifier is the king's voice. And unless something very, very drastic has happened to Fionn between here and Ash's last chapter in Dance, when we last saw him, we know exactly who this king is. Plus, the choking and ranger part is a bit of a giveaway. All kings can get a bit angry every now and then, but with Stannis, it's his default setting, and he'd be the most likely to choke upon it, wouldn't he? So we know, right from the beginning, we're in the presence of Stannis Baratheon again, finally. That's very exciting, because despite having quite a lot of access to him early on in Dance, when he was back at Castle Black with Jon, he's been at arm's length ever since. We didn't get to see his trip through the clan hills where he recruited all the Northerners. We didn't get to see him at Deepwood Mott of his victory. After Asher's capture, we did get a few more glimpses here and there, but they became ever-retreating as we went on. By the time we reached the Crofters' village and everything was really, really uh, on the downward trend, we'll say, Stannis was all but kept to his lonely, lonely tower. His absence was a topic of discussion between ourselves on the podcast and by the in-world characters. Retreated really is the only word to describe it. He retreated into himself, he recoiled. The storm, the apparent defeat, the state of his men and army and what they were doing to each other made him just return to his fire. To plan, to pray, to hope, we, we didn't know. We talked about it a lot, but we had no idea. So we had that question going on up front and personal, as shown by Asher, but also the question of what the hell Stannis was up to in general. We spent an entire book building up this grand war campaign that every signpost pointed to concluding at the end of the book in the Battle for Winterfell. That's what we all expected. But then there was this devastating snowstorm that was killing or starving or weakening the whole army, as well as grinding them to a complete and utter halt for weeks on end. I don't want to walk you back through the whole thing, but it was pretty bad. Just recall how bad it was with the cannibalism and the cold count, and the fact that even if they were to finally complete their journey somehow, how in the hell would they actually be able to fight a battle where they were already at a disadvantage even before they were starved and half-frozen? None of it made any sense. Stannis was playing the role of the good guy in most of our eyes. Certainly while he was up against the Boltons, I think the majority of us, whatever we do think of Stannis in general, wanted him to win against Roose and Ramsay and retake Winterfell for us, especially before Jane was rescued by Theon. So we all expected to actually get to see this battle and we probably thought that Stannis would at least win, maybe quote-unquote, in some fashion. We didn't know the details, nothing's ever clear-cut in George's world, but we thought he would win. Now, in fairness, that wasn't the only battle that was delayed. The Battle of the Fire, also, on the other side of the map. We also didn't get that at the end of Dance, but we were left on its very doorstep. That was beginning, and we've seen the truth of that in our preview chapters, haven't we? It was reverse in the case of the Northern plot, though. That couldn't have looked further away from a battle by the end of Dance. Still, we were sure that it would happen somehow. It had to, after all that build-up, but the question was how, because Stannis and his army really did look down in a hole, didn't they? We covered dozens of theories at the time, most of which actually borrowed information from this preview chapter, but even discounting that, we figured that something must have happened in between, something must have happened afterwards. As mentioned earlier on, the end of Fionn's arc was one of the biggest cliffhangers, and Stannis was a huge part of that. What was the king planning? What was he going to do to get out of this jam? Or had he already done something by this point? All questions that we desperately wanted answering, and it appears via this first line, we're going to at least address some of them. Maybe we'll even get some answers. Finally, if nothing else, we are back with Stannis, and we can see his reaction to the devastation going on around him and the crumbling of his campaign, something that we called an absolute military disaster while we were discussing it in Dance. As for the rest of the first line, 
He is accusing someone of being a pirate. Well, that also confirms it's Stannis, given his relationship with Salador San, and it's very much in keeping with his tone and voice, not just anger, but feeling like he's hard done by and then complaining about it. That's Stannis 101. So we're getting a fresh wave of Stannis right in our faces after being denied so long. I don't think I need to tell you how dominant Stannis is as a character upon the overall plot. He's probably at the very top of the list for non-POVs and their importance, at least the surviving ones, and he means so much not just to this northern plot and the battle for Winterfell, but also the plot in general, the whole direction of the books, the bigger problem of the others and what's going to happen at the wall and the endgame of the series. We think he's going to probably be involved, even if he doesn't make it all the way, he's going to be a big, big part of these books he has so far. He's probably going to become even more important at some point. And we've been missing him. We haven't had the access to him, like I say. So this is huge to get him right here at the beginning of the chapter, to get him established early on. That's big stuff. That's big, exciting stuff. This is an important chapter. Make no mistake. Plus, questions will come along with it as if we don't have enough of them already. Basically, every single part of Stannis' camp and all the characters within, they've all had questions in this gap. What have they been up to in between? What is Asha doing? What are the different knights that she introduced us to doing? What is going to happen to them going forward? And that was before they had the addition of Theon and Jane and Tycho Nostoris and all these new possibilities that they brought. Don't forget the Ironborn as well. Questions, that's nothing new to us, but I think out of our preview chapters, again, that the gap between Theon, or in fact between Ash's last chapter and Theon's first here, is pretty amazing. So we've got plenty of questions to choose from, but the one from this opening line, if we can try and stay focused for a little bit everybody, is who is Stannis complaining about this time? We can assume it's probably not Theon, as the pirate comparison would make you think that the subject is asking something of Stannis. Theon likely wouldn't have the nerve and definitely wouldn't have the position to do that, so who else could it be? Most would likely think of Tycho Nostoris straight off, seeing as he's a newbie that came along with Theon, so it would make sense for him to be addressing them at the same time. And we know that Tycho has come to bargain and barter with the king, so again, that makes sense. But there's always any number of possibilities, really, and we could sit and list them all if we wanted to, but we'll refrain. We'll try and keep it with the actual chapter. Instead, we now open up to our actual POV, Theon. We're reintroduced to him now, confirming that that was not who Stannis was addressing. Indeed, Theon's only just opening his eyes, so this is something he's just overhearing, which introduces new questions. Why would Stannis be talking to someone wherever Theon is also sleeping? That doesn't make much sense. We'll get an answer quite quickly, but before that is the fact that along with his chapter title, Theon has held on to his name in his own mind, which is even more important. In fact, he gets both his first and second name at the same time, which sounds so simple to us and in a vacuum, but it was unthinkable for Theon at this time during Dance, and for much of Dance, in fact. George is quick to point out that not all problems are solved, though. In fact, I would say this is very much the point of this chapter, in terms of the huge, literal leap that Theon took in his last POV. He's still got a lot of issues. He hasn't just clicked his fingers, everything's solved again. A lot of the torment is going to stay with him. We're going to see that throughout this chapter. I don't think you'll need me to point out the signs for you. In terms of that psychological damage, there's just no simple forgetting of what has been. And he actually pushes that idea fairly lightly for now. In this instant, it's only Theon waking and worrying his escape was just a dream and he's actually back in hell with Ramsay. No doubt this kind of thing is probably going to happen for years and years before Theon can maybe find some peace if he yeah, in fact has that long left, that's another question, and it will be the lightest of after effects that he'll suffer from 
due to his unimaginable torture. All of this is going to be a part of Theon for the longest time. Like I say, some of that will pop up today, some of it is just going to be longer term and even harder to actually see. It's so ingrained in him. So we recognise that, even if George isn't going to fixate on it straight away, that will come a bit later on. Along with that though comes a physical realisation. We're told at the beginning that his shoulders are on fire and he can't move his hands. I don't think that sticks out too much at first because it easily fits in with Theon's journey through the snow with Jane. His shoulders may be hurting from carrying her, his unresponsive hands, well that could be from the extreme cold, so that makes sense. But then Theon elaborates. He believes he passed out from extreme pain. His back is scraping on stone, and then the situation is painted much more clearly. Theon is hanging from a wall by his wrists. He is a prisoner and a prisoner in pain. This is one of those surprises that really isn't a surprise if you think about it for more than a few seconds, but it still sticks out as one. If we were to lend any thought to it, then of course Theon would be a prisoner as soon as you meet Stannis. That makes absolute sense. He's still the most hated enemy of the North for his terrible crimes against the Starks. He's still a prince of a family warring against Stannis on the national stage. He's still one of the Ironborn that Stannis has promised to sweep from the realm. And he's last been seen assisting Stannis' current enemies in the Boltons. Okay, we know the unfairness of that, but that's still how it looks to everybody, isn't it? Even forgetting all of that, he is considered guilty of breaking some of the most base laws that Westeros has. Murdering children, rape, the turning of his cloak, and he's happened to run into the most just man that we know of. Of course Stannis is going to imprison him. If anything, it'd be more of a surprise that he's imprisoned him rather than just killed him immediately. Stannis would consider Theon the very lowest of the low. We know that about him. And that all makes sense, again, once we think about it. Even with the removal of politics and optics, we know of Theon's crimes. We know he still has to pay. Even he is aware of that. He told us explicitly at the end of Dance. And that fits in with this idea. This is much deserved. We are all well aware that Theon deserves to be in chains. But it still just kind of sticks out because of the timing. The last we saw of Theon, he was acting the hero. Now we said, we admitted at the time, that doesn't wash away his past crimes, but it still needs to be recognised what he did. Not only did Fionn risk a fate far worse than death if he had been caught, not only did he have to break through those terrible mind barriers, that mental prison like nothing else we've ever seen, well he did it all not just to escape himself, but to save Jane Poole and get her away from danger best he can. We adored the act. That was one of our most discussed chapters ever. We went very, very deep on it. And I remember, hopefully you do as well, getting incredibly passionate in our analysis and how thrilling that chapter was on the page. That was a really good time for all. I hope you'll agree. At the very end, George delighted us by letting us know that it had worked. They had escaped. Theon had saved Jane from her hell beyond hells. It was one of the most important acts of the series. And again, it really did make your heartbeat go, didn't it? That was the last we saw of him. We got that confirmation in Asher's chapter right at the end, that final Asher chapter. So we were full of that feeling towards Theon and that kind of atmosphere. So when we open this chapter, with him being a prisoner, treated harshly and in pain, it can be a, huh, moment. It makes sense two seconds later and we think, well, yeah, that is fair enough. But something simply sticks out about this being Theon's fate immediately after what he did for Jane. To be honest, I think it's a mark of George's mastery. These are the kind of questions that can inspire debate for years with no real right answer. Again, as we just said, we know it fits with Theon's themes. The redemption, the need to pay for crimes. They haven't gone anywhere. And I think most of us believe that that's actually going to be even more central to his character in Wins than it was in Dance, which is saying something. Okay, we've said all that and we're still only halfway down the first page somehow. Now George lights up our stage a bit more as the curtain lifts and we realise we're in that lonely tower that Stannis has been holed up in since they arrived at the village. The man who set out to conquer Winterfell is instead ruling over a dark, windowless, pretty rubbish little tower. It's essentially a hollow tube with a set of stairs and... 
not much else. Just so we really have it confirmed that it's Stannis who lives here, there's no furnishings or comforts or anything. There's a chair and a table. It's dark and it's cold. This is all Stannis has been living in the entire time they've been there, which is probably another source of frustration for him. Yes, in fairness, everyone outside the little dank tower would probably kill to be inside, but in fairness to Stannis, it's not like he's complaining about not having a life of luxury like we know several other leaders would. He's living with the bare minimum just as he did with the Siege of Storm's End. He doesn't care about the perks, he just needs somewhere to hold his meetings and read his maps if they're ever going to get out of this mess. And yes, I suppose there is a level of those trappings of power there as well. He has to keep the respect of his men, that's the done thing. And on top of that, there's a physical sense as well. He has to have the warm tower, because he has to keep himself alive, or his army, his men, and the entire world, he believes, would be screwed. Everything would fall apart if he allows himself to die by sticking it outside there, outside the tower in the tents for everyone else. If he wakes up frozen, if he's part of the cold count, it's got consequences, so he's not going to do that. Next up, we get confirmation of our Taicho theory when Theon hears Stannis grumbling about other people's debts, namely Robert's and Joffrey's. So, thanks to previous Cersei and Jon chapters, we know this to be an offer from the Iron Bank of Bravos that Stannis is talking about. If you're going to sit the chair, you must pay the chair's debts, that's what it comes down to. But because of Cersei's foolishness, nay, flat-out rudeness to Noho Domitis that you might remember, we know that Iron Bank to be coming with this offer that Taicho has been chasing Stannis all over the north with. Cersei, she didn't want to play ball. It was one of her more stupid decisions, which really is saying something. So the bank, they're going to team up with her enemy instead. And they say, so long as you promise to make good on these debts that are not yours, we'll provide you with whatever we can to help you win in the first place. They will get revenge on Cersei. They're going to get their money secured, so it's double win for them. And Stannis, he gets what he wants as well. So everybody wins. Now, Stannis might grumble about the, the spirit, the idea of having to pay debts that aren't his, especially since most were accrued by being frivolous with the books and not being uh, the wisest of spenders when he himself is Mr. Prudent. But both we and him know what a major lifeline this offer is. Even before all this business with the storm and the snow, Stannis was in dire need of something like this if he truly wanted to win the realm. The North is one thing, all seven kingdoms are something else, and the North is difficult enough, as we can see. He's always lacked for coin ever since he entered the series, and it's just a reality of war that he needs such things, whether that's for sellsword hiring, or gaining allies, or again, just the look of the thing. Stannis might not like it, but that is part of the game. Now, of course, in the situation they find himself in, it's an even bigger lifeline. It's an angel come out of the snow with a three-tiered hat to reinvigorate what looked like a doomed campaign. When Taicho turned up at the end of Dance, we said what an absolute game-changer this could be for the future of the North and the direction of the series, and Stannis recognised that too, even if he's not going to let on right now. In fairness, it's not going to help straight away. Money can't solve storms, but it does give hope. It gives him an ally, an investor, someone who wants him to win not just this battle, but the next one, and the next one, and they'll help ultimately replace the men he's lost to this damn storm, a number which is always growing, we know. Of course, none of this is crossing Fion's mind just now. He's yet to identify Taicho actually being there, we're just kind of skipping ahead. He's still focused on the king's voice that he recognises must be Stannis, and that sends him down a little mini path of despair, where he's wound up. He even gives us a mini-review of his entire dance storyline, really, while he's at it. As he begins to focus on the physical pain of being strung up on a wall, he goes down a similar path of what we just discussed. Everything he went through in dance that he's putting through in his mind, he's reviewing in his mind right now, it's all kind of been unrewarded, it seems like to him. 
He's ended up in the same situation, he says. He suffered beyond belief at Ramsey's hands. He did all that was asked of him from multiple parties, Roos and Lady Dustin and everyone else. And then he not only broke through his mind prison to risk her all and save Jane, he also finished the job by carrying her through a snowstorm. We know that Theon himself isn't asking for instant absolution or any luxury prizes or award or anything like that, but he says that this is still a harsh reality for him, whatever he believes he deserves. In fairness, he is caught up in the moment a bit here. Theon would be the first to tell you that Stannis is nothing like Ramsay. He can't really compare them, especially in terms of being a tormentor. Stannis might be icy cold, but he's not Ramsay. I suppose you can argue that death by burning is one of the most cruel torments, but again, it's not comparable. Then again, it's probably tough for Theon to focus on that while he's dangling from a wall, six feet up in the air, suspended by only his wrists. That is unimaginable pain for the most healthy of people, let alone someone who's been mutilated, half starved even before they walked through a snowstorm, and who resembles someone currently half a century older dangling from your wrists all of your weight on those joints that's terrible so we can forgive him for being a bit moody and a bit off base about the situation now he does recognize that it's tychona storis finally that stannis is talking to and it seems a deal has already been struck off screen as stannis appears to be signing something or he would be if his ink had not frozen yeah that serves pretty well as a reminder of how bloody cold it is even the tower cannot protect against that so in what stannis probably thinks of as a a pretty punky move a middle finger to the iron bank he cuts his thumb and signs the thing in blood instead it's how very symbolic or rebellious stannis well done you got us you signed it in blood at the same time both men agree that taicho is to be off once more before the fighting begins which is a wonderful hint of how stannis absolutely does not believe this storm to be the end of him he is going to get to this fight he's going to battle it's not over in his mind we'll come back to that in a minute first though let's think about poor old taicho the traveling man Yes, he has completed his objective, so we have to give him a nod for that. But he's just always on the move, isn't he? He never stops this guy. Tight Show was actually the subject of one of the Character of the Week discussions over on the Radio Westeros Discord recently. And I pointed out just how annoying his journey has actually been, and yet how dedicated he's remained. I'll remind you, he, he went up to Eastwatch. Stannis has already left. So he goes to Castle Black, with Selyse's company, by the way. Stannis has already left. So he goes to Deepwood Mop. Stannis has already left. He battles through a raging snowstorm to get to Winterfell. Stannis hasn't even arrived. So he goes back through said snowstorm and finally finds his target. He gets grumbled at. Okay, he strikes the deal, that's good. But now he's off again, before he's killed as an innocent in war. But he did get the job done. So surely, surely, Taichu's on for a raise when he gets back, isn't he? He's got to be employee of the week over at the Iron Bank. He's got to be. He defines dedication, this guy, so it's pretty cool that he does have his moment. Now, in classic Stannis style, he's got no interest in the pleasantries that the departing Taicho is now offering. He just wants them to both be straightforward. They want each other's coin and nothing else. Come on, Stannis, be nice to the dude. Think of what he's been through. But luckily, it looks like it's water off a duck's back for Taicho. He keeps his calm demeanor and he departs, back off to the wall yet again. And at the moment, it's not made clear yet what route he will take. Will he be going up to Castle Black first to retrace his steps? Or is he going to try and cut across country straight up to Eastwatch so that he can reclaim his ships and get the hell out of this place? If it's the former, then that's another factor of the chaos at Castle Black that we didn't even think to consider when we finished Dance. We thought we'd gone like every angle, we did spend hours on it, but there's always one more. If Taicho is going there, then what is he going to find when he arrives? It's absolutely anyone's guess to be honest. I'm not going to take you back through all the hundreds of possibilities of what could be going on at Castle Black, but is there a chance his welcome is not so warm as last time? Well, yes, there's a very good chance, in fact. Could he be arrested or could he even be killed by whoever does hold the castle? Well, we can't write it off, it, as cruel an end as it would be. There's also a chance that he comes back and is welcomed, but John obviously appears to be dead. 
So does their former deal hold? Remember that deal that John made with him? Or does one side or the other now cancel it? And one former possibility out there is that Taicho is now carrying a very small sample of Stannis' blood, King's blood, up to the wall. We know there are other samples up there already, the living variety, but who knows, maybe Melisandre or someone else can make use of this as well. Stranger things have happened, maybe. Yeah, that one might be a bit out there, but it could come about. And one more thing, actually, just to talk about while we're discussing Jon's deal with Taicho. Don't forget, Taicho gave up his free Provoshi ships for Jon's expedition to Hardhome. They are still there. They're still afloat at the moment, according to Cotterpike, but they're definitely not available for use. They're not waiting at Eastwatch to get Taicho Nostoris and everybody else back home across the narrow sea. So what happens there? Melisandre says none of them are ever coming back. Now, we don't know the, the truth of that. Maybe that's true. Maybe there are other ships he can use instead, but I doubt it. I mean, they've definitely not got a large supply, have they? They haven't got a large fleet, the Night's Watch. So that's just another factor to remember in the journey, the unending journey of Taicho Nostoris. And what is going to happen? What will be the fallout that he arrives to at Castle Black, if that's where it's going? But for now, for this chapter, we're just going to have to wonder about him because Taicho, he departs once more. Although, having said that, he might physically leave, but his effect will linger on to later in the chapter. As we quickly realise that something else Fionn is retaining from Dance is him essentially being a camera. He sheds some of that in his final chapters of Dance, but there were very large camera-only moments from him in that book. And now he's actually been mounted up on the wall for a better angle as well. So we figure this is definitely going to be a major part of his chapter, which we're probably fine with because we've been begging to have a fly on the wall with Stannis for ages, just so happens we have a Fionn-shaped fly instead. In fairness, Stannis does actually give Fionn some attention in a moment, but not before being told that Arnolf Karstark, his son, and his Karstark grandsons would all love to have breakfast with the king in a moment. Aha, now... This is a plot thread that's so easy to forget given all that's going on in this area. The plotted betrayal of Arnulf Karstark. I'm sure your memories are being jogged as we say it. This is very much hitting on the theme of establishment. All first chapters have to do it, but it seems like these two are doing it much more than the Battle of the Fire chapters. In this case, we have near endless characters and plots to remember, and Arnulf is definitely a good example. I won't go through all the specifics with you, but the basis is that he's being all chummy chummy with Stannis right now, only because he intends to betray him later and fight for the Boltons once the battle actually begins, as if Stannis isn't screwed enough anyway. Okay, maybe we remember that bit we did cover in Ash's chapters, but do we remember the fact that Jon knew about this betrayal thanks to Alice Karstark, or more importantly, the fact that he sent such information along with Tyke Jonastoris, who has now assumedly given it to Stannis. Aha, again, yes, now we see the importance of the moment, now we get that mental click. If Stannis knows that, then it changes things massively, it's another huge leap ahead in his chances for survival. And if the Karstarks don't yet know that Stannis knows, which you'd have to guess they don't if they want to have brunch together, that also means we might be seeing some Stannis justice before long. In addition, we'd probably actually quite want to see. So if you do manage to catch that on your first read, then George has just set up another huge tease, another thing to look forward to, but he's going to make us wait first, of course, because that's what George likes to do. Because at the same time he's told about the Karstarks, Stannis is also told the big bucket wall fan favourite would also like a word. And Stannis knows what the word is, as did the weirwood tree, Theon. The Northern Lords, unsurprisingly, want Theon dead for his dark crimes that they still believe to be true, and, I mean, many of them are true, in all fairness. They came all this way to save the Ned's daughter, so they can kill two birds with one stone, they can get some justice for the killer of the Ned's sons, can't they? That again fits in with the earlier notion of Theon finally doing good only to land in more hot water. 
These Northmen hate him as much as the ones in Winterfell did, but again, it is deserved. He earned their scorn no matter what he's done recently, and that is fair. The internal focus from Theon shouldn't be on that, it should be on the fact that he saved Jane's life, and her true identity is another mountain of plot aspect to think through later on. He's got to think on that rather than his own fate, but I guess it is something else to consider. The prospects don't look great for Theon here at this opening chapter, but then, when have they ever, really? We'll cover that a bit later as well. Stannis is asked specifically if he will give the Northerners what they want by Richard Hawke, who's delivering this news to him. He does need to keep them on side after all, especially with all these burnings of late, and this would certainly achieve it. But Stannis has a goal in mind that comes before the wants of others. He's a man of war, and if Tycho Nestorius was a gift dropped from the sky, then Theon is as valuable as they come. Again, let's make it clear, Stannis is still intent on winning. He's not rolling over in the snow. We've no idea how, but he intends to take Winterfell as originally stated, incredibly. And the person who knows Winterfell best out of everyone remaining in the entire North, save Jon Snow himself, who has four fresh speed holes in his flesh by the way, has just fallen into Sansa's lap. Even better, Theon knows recent Winterfell. He knows how the people inside are faring, he knows which bits have been repaired and which hasn't. He knows who's suffering inside, who could be broken or who's weak. And he has at least some knowledge of the defensive structure and how they're adjusting for the weather. He knows the minds of the enemy, which can be as valuable as anything else. On top of that, Theon has the intimate knowledge of the castle that John would as well, and that is worth a bar of gold in the hand of Stannis Baratheon as a man trying to infiltrate said castle without being immediately slaughtered. Stannis is a practical man, so however much his northern lords might be clamouring, at the very least he's going to squeeze Theon for every single piece of information he can get first. He is still in this war, this is still going, it's still important, so he's absolutely sticking to his guns. But before the Karstarks or the Northern Lords are dealt with, there is a maester waiting to see Stannis. And before that, there is a mysterious letter in black wax that Stannis is looking at. One that Theon knows the contents of, so the intrigue continues. Theon even giggles at such a fact, finally earning him Stannis' direct attention. Let's have our first quote of the day. Stannis looked up. The turncloak stirs. Theon. My name is Theon. He had to remember his name, he thought. Now, I don't think you need any reminding from me what this means, what this thought from Theon means. This is another aspect we saw go strong all the way through Dance, including his final chapter, when he finally rescued Jane, when he fully chose Theon over Reek. He repeated this same mantra to Asher when they were reunited in her final chapter as well. And you'd struggle to find a mantra that's more important to an individual character at this point. So it's another important moment to say that Theon has stuck with that message and is continuing with that thought. He's refusing to let it go, even if if it is perfectly true that yes he is a turncloak but that's besides the point he's theon to him he has to maintain a grip on that and so far he is stannis though he refers exactly to the turncloak part i know your name i know what you did theon chooses to ignore what stannis is referring to he'd prefer to talk about what he did lately which makes sense i think most people would rather talk about their glories rather than their crimes so he fills us in a bit on what happened when they jumped which obviously we didn't get to see at the time it was the snow that saved them, apparently, halving the distance of the drop from the 80-foot outer Winterfell wall. Still, 40 feet is a hell of a jump, and Jane's ribs were broken when Fionn landed on top of her. And that stabs at us again, because Jane has already been through so much. Broken ribs are an easy preference to another single second with Ramsay, but still, we hate to hear it. And Fionn thinks of her name as well, another secret of identity and when to use it. That'll be coming up a little bit later on, he'll think on that again. 
Theon repeats that he saved Jane. It's again a fact, another fact that he has to cling to. Thirsty because it was genuinely important to him to save her life, but also because it's the one thing that brings him any worth. It's his balancer against all his great evils, and he did risk everything to achieve it, so it makes sense that he fixates on it so much. He claims they flew because that would be a fitting end to a hero rescuing the princess. Stannis, however, he's not so much for the poetic. He says, no, you fell. Don't dress it up, let's deal with the facts. And he also takes away the title of saviour, claiming it belongs to Moore's Umber slash Crowfood instead, because without him happening to be there outside the Winterfell walls, they both, Fionn and Jane, would have been lost to either exposure or recapture, which is probably much, much worse. That may well be true, but we do know it's cruel and incorrect of Stannis to claim that Fionn didn't save Jane. Stannis is supposed to call it as he sees it, with no extra fluff. Well, Fionn did save her. We know what he went through and what he risked. Again, it was thrilling at the time. So he deserves that title in this instance, at least, and like we said, it's important for Fionn to maintain a grip on that. We go into Fionn's memory again now, as he describes Crowfood for us, specifically focusing on the eye patch that made Fionn think of his uncle, the one with a black eye, shining with malice, beneath his own patch yes that's the line there that sends a chill through the bones doesn't it just makes us think of you're on a bit that could be important for later but to keep it on what we're talking about right now when Fionn and jane jumped their trials didn't end with the thump of the snow when crow food came upon them he named Fionn turncloak and kinslayer immediately regardless of whatever he's just done doesn't care that's what he sees him at that's what all the northerners see him as those titles will just not wash out of their mouths as well it shouldn't in all fairness but moors also smartly gave jane a test to see who she was because fairly amazingly considering what she just went through jane remembers to keep up the game and say that she is Aya. So that's some huge presence of mind from her. Remember the trauma, the state that we found her in, as well as then the experience of actually having to escape. And she just saw a bunch of people die doing it as well. Somehow she still remembers what she's got to do. She says, I am Aya Stark. So we should really give Jane some credit there. That is amazing. She also clears Moore's checkup. He asks her for the name of the cook and then the smith of Winterfell. And Jane says both Gage and Micken. Even if there is a bit of a wobble on the second one, she didn't know Micken as well, but she gets there. And yes, she is helped out here by the fact that these people just exist in her own memory. She has actually met them. But the additional detail of lemon cakes for Sansa, which ironically also comes from Jane's own memory, probably goes a long way to persuading Moors and saving her and Fionn's lives. Apparently, there could have been more to the test, but the portcullis of Winterfell's main gate was rising, which reminds us of the timing of Theon and Jane's escape. The Freys and Mandalese had been ordered out of the castle after their bust-up in the hall, and were readying to ride out into the storm in Theon's last chapter. Obviously, prep time was over by now, and this was the beginning. They were riding out, although we should remember they had been sent out opposite gates, so this was the Freys most likely coming out that Moore saw. That's maybe why he grinned at this turn of events, Moore's Umber. It might also be because he'd probably just become bored of keeping people up at night and wanted to start killing them instead, especially if they're phrase. So that's why he's smiling. Back in the present, back on this chain on the wall, Fionn gives credit to Moors for his part played, but insists that he, Fionn, was the one to save Jane, and that you could even ask her herself. And again, he touches on the fact that he'd made sure to drill the ruse into her as he carried her through the storm. He remembers that she'd been looking at him with all the gratefulness in the world. She had even smiled, which is important. Again, consider what she's been through, that we detailed so heavily back then. Can there really be any bigger victory than the fact that Jane Poole smiled? That's amazing. We have to give Fionn credit for that. And it does mean something to Fionn, and he likely figures that he hasn't got much else to lose. So he grows his spine and he bites back at Stannis. He says he deserves more. He deserves thanks. He did a good thing. Okay, Drew, he's half right, but he's also in agony. 
That's why he's biting back as well, because he details the feeling of his own weight pulling his shoulders apart. Ugh, that's, that's rough. And that pain makes him go another route, the offer of service. It's, he'll try anything to get him off the damn wall. Let's quote the reply from Stannis here. As you served Roose Bolton and Rob Stark, Stannis snorted. I think not. We have a warmer end in mind for you, Turncloak, but not until we're done with you. Okay, now that's a bit unfair on Stannis' part there. The Rob section, yes, that's absolutely true. We know what Theon did to Rob. The Roose section, eh, not so much. But of course, the more interesting part is that yes, Stannis does intend to burn Theon once he's got all the information he can from him. He'll placate the Northmen by killing their criminal and their turncloak, but he'll also keep his queensmen happy by letting them burn someone, which we know they enjoy. And the common man, plus those out there still in the North, will thank him for the justice and it'll make him ever more popular, so it's another win to be gained from killing Theon in that way. None of this is anything that Theon didn't expect. He knew that his end would come at the request of one Northman or another. He's even thought before on how it would be what he deserves. What he's not on board with is the method of burning, not only because of the incredible pain it would cause, but the look of the thing. He is, among many other things, still a member of a great family. He's still a Greyjoy. Technically, he's still a prince, in fact. He was a ward of Winterfell's, and on some level he considers himself a Stark, or at least of the North. He wants the honour of dying the honourable way, just as he watched Ned Stark do all those years ago at the series' beginning. So he tries to goad Stannis into doing just that, and quickly, before he can change his mind. He'll even admit to the killing of Bran and Rickon if it'll spur things along. And then he reveals there is a third reason for the rush. He would prefer literally any fate in the world instead of falling into the hands of Ramsay Bolton, and he thinks there's a chance that that could happen. What that says about his opinions on Stannis' chance for victory, I'll leave to you. But to be honest, it doesn't really matter how strong Stannis looks. Theon will never feel safe from Ramsay, as he displays by his quick mental meltdown when Stannis refers to Ramsay as the bastard. The effects are still there, the importance of the names is still there, and they will be for a long while yet. No matter the evidence of what Ramsay has done to Theon, Stannis remains uncaring. He invites Ramsay to do his worst which is cool, but is this a cool moment of Ramsay actually coming up against a competent enemy for once? Remember, his biggest actual victory is either complete trickery with Roderick or beating Theon, of all people. Brilliant. So is it that, or is it inviting comeuppance later on? Is Stannis saying all these things, but then he's actually going to get proven wrong? Well, I'm hoping for the first that it is actually Ramsay coming up against a decent enemy and paying for it. But that conversation ends now as the maester enters, along with Richard Hawp, Clayton Suggs, Godry Farring, and two ravens for some reason. The maester, who we've not actually seen on page yet, is Tybold, Dreadfort maester, and he appears to know his situation is not one of the best, and Stannis does nothing to dissuade that notion. After Tybold confirms that he was brought by Arnolf merely for his medical skills and to tend to the ravens, Stannis really puts the guy on edge by asking if it's correct that a raven can fly to one place and one place only. And to be honest, this skill, which I don't remember being referenced ever before this point, well, it makes the entire business of ravenry much more complicated and difficult than before, but we'll ignore that for now. That's a bit of a rabbit hole to go down. The point is that when Stannis says these words, the maester seems to know he's in trouble. Stannis has clearly selected the right track, and he's going to be arriving at a destination that the maester really doesn't want him to reach. After some gabbling on the nature of ravens and their skills, the maester admits that the two ravens in question only fly one place each. The whole room knows it's coming. Stannis asks, where? Where do they go? The maester hesitates. A first-time reader might not quite know where it's going, but we can taste the change in atmosphere, and so can Theon. For a reason not made explicitly clear to us straight away, he's laughing. He knows this guy's been caught out, and he's pretty happy about it. 
Stannis suspects the same thing, but he's not going to give any quarter, and we start to work things out when he lays it on the line. Do these ravens go to Winterfell? Tybold, by way of admission, pisses himself. Probably, that's all we need to know. Just to jog your memory, you'll recall that during the Manderley Frey kerfuffle, Roose Bolton magically gained some intel on Stannis' position at the village, yet none of us knew how. Well, I think we've just uncovered that, haven't we? Arnolf Karstark's betrayal was getting an early start, and he used the maester to do it. Further evidence is supplied by Godry Faring. They found an empty cage of ravens. Whoa, oh dear. Short of finding out that this maester summoned the storm itself, there really isn't a worse crime to put in front of Stannis right now. Tybold tries to rally to his credit. He tries to claim the neutrality of the maester's orders. He was doing what he was told. What choice did he have? And there is a truth to that, I suppose. If he refused, it would probably mean his death, at least earlier on. But now, when he's out here in the village, he could have come to Stannis. But then, if the Boltons were to win, well, such are the choices of war. Stannis isn't concerned with sentencing just yet. The most important thing to do right now is find out what intel the enemy has. He guesses that the letters from Arnolf to Winterfell gave away their position. And remember that Fionn has just told him that enemy are on the way, so this is important stuff. It's all linking together. Tybalt, he has one more go at playing the dedicated maester, which actually gets some nice words about Crescent out of Stannis' mouth. He says, I had a maester on Dragonstone who was almost a father to me. I have great respect for your order and its vows. It's generally a nice moment, a rare moment from Stannis. Why couldn't he have just told the old man that when he had the chance? We know how much it would have meant to Maester Cressin, but alas alarms, unfortunately. Such feelings do not extend to the Maester in front of him, however. Instead, he threatens letting Clayton Suggs get his cruel, painful kicks out of torturing Tybold. The suggestion that he could lose an eye seems to finally get through as the Maester admits that a map was sent to Roose Bolton at Winterfell. So yes, confirmation of how Roose knew. Tension as well in the idea that the enemy actually is approaching now and knows where they're going, if they can find their way through the snows. And as well as that, extreme anger from Stannis. A map is the very worst of things that could have been in that letter, save for a snowplow perhaps. Mere directions would have been better, but no. The enemy has a fantastic idea of where they are and how to attack them. Stannis's rock bottom just got a few feet lower. The famous vein returns, and it's honestly surprising that Stannis doesn't kill the maester there and then. Instead, he sends him off to confinement with Clayton and Godry, with the ravens left behind. Stannis chooses to share his anger with Fionn. We know how much lies and deceit bother him. We know how often it comes up in his life, unfortunately. All he wants is for everyone to be as straightforward and as cut dry as him. That's what you're supposed to be, isn't it? That's what you're told to be. Let's recall as well how badly this mission has gone. It basically couldn't have been any worse. Then Arnolf comes along. Okay, you're still in a bad way, but it's always good to have an ally. It's a little ray of hope. But now this is actually false hope. How many more people are going to do this to you? How many more can't just be straight with you? It's the ultimate frustration for Stannis. But he only allows himself that one moment of self-pity and anger. The war is still on and he needs to react. He's confirmed what he assumedly learned from Titan Astoris. So there's no time to dwell, only to act. He turns to Sir Richard and tells of his plan, which is fairly clever actually. He will eat with Arnoff and his offspring, or at least he'll extend the offer, the acceptance of the offer. While they are distracted, Horp is to take the unsuspecting and leaderless cast up men into custody and question them. Now, if it were up to Stannis, he'd likely condemn them all just to be on the safe side. He surely cannot trust them, not entirely anyway, but he doesn't have that luxury. If any of them are innocent, and surely a good number must be, or the secret absolutely would have got out, then he needs them. He needs every single soul he can get for this next battle and the ones to come after. So that's it. Straightforward. No more fluff. Off you go, Sir Richard. The conveyor belt outside Stannis' door keeps turning, and we swap night for night. Out goes Horp, 
In comes Justin Massey, last seen getting incredibly frustrated with his position that he's ended up with, even after having a semi-nice time with Asher. Stannis is a busy man, we can clearly see, so he doesn't waste time. He tells Justin straight up of his new mission. He and six others will escort Tychonus Doris back up to the wall, although again, he doesn't say where on the wall. And just to throw this in here, Stannis also says, take 12 horses, to which Justin replies, to ride or eat. I include that because that's a pretty good line, Justin, well done. I think you'd get on well with Ed Tillet. Maybe you'll meet him up on the wall, that'd be cool. Humour aside, that's pretty ballsy to say that to Stannis, of all people as well, and in this situation. The king does not respond, only saying how imperative it is to future chances that Tycho gets back to Bravos. Otherwise, obviously, the whole deal is off and, well, he needs it to be on. It's so important that Justin will actually go the entire way with him. So again, same questions as earlier, how are they actually going to get there? But we'll save that. Justin actually protests, yes, very, very ballsy, isn't he? Saying that he should be here, on the edge of battle, ready to fight. We know that's not the extent of his feelings on the matter, we went through that in Asher's chapters, but he talks a good game. For Stannis, though, this is about allocation of resources, not about sparing feelings. Justin is only average at fighting, but the talking skill can be used elsewhere to gain something else useful for further down the road. It's Stannis, faced with an unbeatable snowstorm, but he's always thinking ahead. He's always thinking of every angle. You've got to give him credit. Justin will be put in charge of the gold just levered from Tycho Nestoris. While in Bravos, he has to use his skills to purchase the services of 20,000 sail swords, the kind that Stannis generally disapproves of, but really needs either now or down the road. So yes, Westeros, if Justin is to be successful, really will be flux with sellsword companies. Considering we had perhaps one or two around during the actual War of the Five Kings, we're now going to have the Golden Company down in the Stormlands, whatever Justin buys, and at least some of the ones currently fighting in Marine probably coming over with Daenerys. So it's going to be a lot of them at some point. And the irony is that Stannis actually requests the Golden Company if he can get top choice. If he can have anyone, that's who he wants. So that's a little bit of a laugh for us, as obviously, as we say, the Golden Company is already across the Narrow Sea and are fighting for someone that Stannis doesn't even realise is a rival for the Iron Throne yet. And we can't wait for him to find that out. These are things he just doesn't know because he's stuck up here in the north in the middle of a snowstorm. So yeah, whenever we do get that piece of news, Stannis' reaction is going to be one to watch. But it gives you a sense of the kind of force that Stannis is looking for. He doesn't want just a little addendum or an add-on. He wants a full-on fighting force, basically a whole new army, that could maybe swing the entire war. And could you imagine if Stannis actually had got the Golden Company? If he'd got them under his wing and they were in this northern war for him? That would be a pretty exciting combination, because we've seen how good they are, we've seen how good Stannis is, that would be more than interesting. Stannis is so enamoured with the idea of the Golden Company, perhaps because they are said to have more honour than your average sellsword, or perhaps because he knows many of them actually do want to come home and will fight all the harder for the chance, he tells Justin to go even further than Braavos if you can actually get the Golden Company. Go all the way down into the disputed lands if you have to. Although definitely do at least find some replacements immediately if you're going to do that. Send me something, give me something, get who you can in Bravos, send them via the wall, which I think gets across how long-term Stannis is actually thinking. These are months-long expeditions. These are trips involving a lot of trust that sellswords can be hired and then make their way to Stannis without breaking their contract. But this is how his mind is working. It's all war. It's his entire focus. It is his life. Let's make no mistake. He mentions that he wants archers, specifically. But why? 
Is that just because he generally doesn't have that many and he wants them? Or does he have something specific in mind for his plan? Probably not because he's not going to get them in time for that, so it's more likely it's just him trying to shore up his deck. Makes sense. Maybe he even knows that eventually he will end up defending the wall if all goes as planned, and like John, he's identified that archers would be the most valuable in that situation. Or maybe he knows about the very, very skilled archers of the Golden Company, Black Balak and his Golden Heart Bows. We know he wants the Golden Company, and it would be pretty in keeping with Stannis to nerd out about what each sellsword company can offer. I bet he collected all the trading cards when he was younger. Justin brings up another two points in response. The first, in Shades of Davos Seaworth, is the idea that sellswords aren't going to be interested in getting hired by some mere knight. Why not send a lord, someone with some gravitas to impress them? And yes, I think it is worth asking if Justin is just bringing this up on the off chance that Stannis could make him a lord here and now. He knows that's a slim percentage, but why not take a chance? We discussed back in Dance how the gaining of land and title was the main goal for many of these men who've come north of Stannis and then found themselves freezing in a blizzard instead. This was a major source of Justin and other people's disillusion. They were giving up on all those promised goals. So yes, it probably is a little part of the motivation behind this point, and he's probably not entirely wrong either. I would guess that Stannis wishes he still had his hand Davos Seaworth for this purpose specifically. But he denies Justin's point, saying that the sellswords would listen because Justin will have gold and they'll want to get paid. Which is pretty on point, that is how it tends to work. Stannis' acid tones speak the truth. Whatever happens, Justin is not to return with fewer than 20,000 men. So again, we really see that Stannis means business here. He means to make a huge army when combining these hirelings with the remnants of what he has here, what he has at the wall, and what he probably hopes to gain from the other northerners once he wins Winterfell. Justin's second point, which does go to show that he wasn't just fishing for a promotion when he saw an opportunity, is for Stannis himself to go to Bravos. As you'd expect, Stannis does not like this idea whatsoever. In Storm, we spoke about how the retreat from the Blackwater affected him mentally. It was an embarrassment for him nationally. It went against his core being of never bending, never giving in. Of course, he doesn't want to do that again. He knows the story that would be spun out of it. And to be fair, if he ever thought that a genuine option, he might have already done it in the last several weeks of everyone dying in the cold. No, he's come this far and nothing is turning him back. We're also told that it was Justin, plus Richard Hawke, who actually persuaded Stannis to retreat from the Blackwater. As neutral viewers, we can agree with Justin that that was the right choice. Stannis had indeed lost, and either needed to be saved from himself, or his life would go the same way as his potential victory. But Stannis did not see it that way. He saw it as cowardly, and he likes to share out some of the blame for the day that way, instead of seeing how it really was. Ironically, Justin's idea to persuade Stannis is to bring up the formations of the Golden Company Stannis just brought up himself. He paints Stannis as another bitter steel, vowing to return once he gets his army. The hole in this argument is rather obvious. Bitter steel didn't come back, at least not successfully. Stannis uses Viserys as another fine example as well. Those that abandon their chance rarely get a second, and Stannis thinks he's already used up one. He hasn't gone through what he has in the north to leave it all behind. If he does, then he'll be the king who runs. He'll lose the good faith he's built up with the Northerners for failing at his promise, and the Boltons will only become that much more entrenched. He says, I do not beg, nor will I flee again. I am Robert's heir, the rightful king of Westeros. My place is with my men. Yours is in Bravos. Go with the banker and do as I have bid. Garcay gets the blood going, quite like it from Stannis. Justin accepts, but there's one more thing before he goes. Stannis tells him that he might hear of Stannis' death while he's away. And it might even be true if he does hear of it. If such a rumour does reach their ears, then he is not to stop in his mission. He is still to bring the sellsword to cross. If anyone questions him why, it is for vengeance and to place young Shireen on the Iron Throne in his stead. In Stannis' eyes, she'll be the true heir, which is the only thing he's ever cared about, really. What is true and right.
He charges Justin to keep that mission or die in the attempt, and Justin swears on his nightly oaths that he'll do so. As readers of Dan's, our question must be, do we believe him, considering his earlier disillusionment? I say yes, I think he actually is buying in, but I could very easily be wrong. The larger question is, why does Stannis think the word of his death might spread? Is it because he genuinely thinks it could be true, given his current circumstances? I mean, things don't look good, do they? But that doesn't sound much like Stannis, that defeatist attitude. Or is it because he actually has some trick up his sleeve where he will fool the enemy into believing he's dead before proving them wrong? To be honest, that doesn't sound much like Stannis either, but perhaps that's what's needed to get him out of this rather sticky situation. Maybe this rejuvenated Stannis that we're seeing in this chapter is born of a man willing to put himself out there and mix it up in order to attain victory because he doesn't want to lose. He most definitely doesn't want another Blackwater to his name. And because we've already read Dance, like I say, we also already know this to be true. Rumours of his death will spread because we've seen them already arrive at Castle Black in the form of the pink letter. Oh, that dastardly pink letter. That's exactly what is said within, that Stannis is defeated and dead. Now, it can get a bit confusing with the timeline of when that letter arrives and when this chapter takes place, but let's just bear with me for a minute. We could combine our knowledge of the letter with this scene and come to a couple of conclusions. A. Stannis knows there'll be rumours of his death because he's the one that's going to spread them. Perhaps he wrote the pink letter telling that tale, hence he can say to Justin with confidence they might hear of such up there, because he knows for a certainty that they have heard of it. Now, I won't go into the many possible motivations that Stannis might have had for writing the letter. We did all that when we actually covered that chapter during Dance, and it can get pretty confusing. But we could also mix it with some of the language that Theon uses in this chapter, also being very similar to language used in the letter, i.e. I want my bride back. That does come up in this chapter, so that's possible. Or B, the other option, it could be that Stannis does pull whatever fake out he's planning and that Ramsay completely buys it, then writes it into the pink letter if he is the author genuinely believing it to be true. That's also possible. So if that's the case, why should Stannis want people to think him dead when he knows how quickly his forces would shatter in the snow without him? It would be game over, wouldn't it? The end of the war, the end of everyone. But perhaps that is what he purposely wants his enemies to think. One of the most popular theories around, I think originally put out there by Brynden Beefish, as so many good theories are, is that Stannis will defeat the oncoming phrase with whatever lake method you prefer. We've talked about that before as well. But as we know, even after that, the Battle of Winterfell would still remain. He still has to actually conquer the castle. You know, Winterfell. The Winterfell that is practically unassailable at the best of times, even when there isn't a massive snowstorm and your army isn't freezing and starving to death, and has probably just had to fight a bunch of frays. So the idea persists that Stannis, knowing this, will put forward a more underhanded approach than he normally chooses. Instead of besieging Winterfell straight up, he's going to try and sneak in and take the thing from inside. He'll use guile instead of brute force, very similar to what John Connington is promising us for Storm's End. So after killing all the Freys of his frozen lake, perhaps Stannis puts the word out that he is dead, that he died in that battle, that the Freys were successful. Possibly then he could join up with the actually loyal Mandalays, or maybe he distresses some of his own men up as Freys, and then goes off to Winterfell. With either party, whether Mandalay or Frey, Frey, quote-unquote, claiming the job is done, they then get let back inside Winterfell, everyone on Team Bolton visibly relaxes, and then once inside, the Stannis troops either start slaughtering or open a secret door or whatever it might be, the battle begins, advantage Stannis. Probably just at that moment, the rest of Stannis' forces would arrive from the snow to ride at Winterfell hard, and I would guess that that would be the Northern Chiefs as it would be much harder to disguise those guys. Stannis' southerners, they would look a lot more like Freys, wouldn't they? Obviously, that idea fits in rather well considering whose POV we're in. Theon could provide the crucial information on how to pull this off, what gate to use, 
how to sneak the soldiers in most efficiently. Let's remember that crazy layout of Winterfell that Bran told us about at the beginning, how it's not built on flat land, it's not a perfect circle, and some paths can't be seen, and you can wind up somewhere different from when you started, etc, etc. Theon, he's not going to know as much as Bran, but he will know a grand majority of all that, so it seems mega, mega useful for this purpose. Beyond that, it's also great thematically. Winterfell is very rarely fallen. The two times it's happened in our viewpoint is by people sneaking in when they weren't expected, in Theon's original take, and then when Ramsay took it from Fionn by pretending to be an ally to get his foot in the door. We could see Stannis using a perfect mixture of both to get inside and deal merry hell to the Boltons. Besides, if he does team up with the Mandalays, then we know Wyman is more than capable of a ruse, should he survive that long. And on top of that, consider how much of Stannis' backstory is rooted in siege warfare. It'd be pretty funny if, when it comes to the most important moment of his military career, Stannis decides to go completely off-route and try to trick his way in instead. Besides, the majority of us agree that Stannis is going to win this battle. It seems like he has to, both for his own development and for what we expect the rest of the Northern storyline to do from here. So how else would he manage it? Wondrous as it might be, to see those frays go pouring into the ice, it still seems next to impossible for Stannis to actually win Winterfell. So he's going to have to pull something strange out of his hat, and this death faking would absolutely fit the bill. Then again, also the idea of him teaming up with the Mandalays, that's kind of difficult given what the story is with Wyman regarding Davos, but it could happen. But we'll come back to the idea of what happens after this chapter later on. For now, one more charge is laid upon Sir Justin, one that actually is a tad emotional and puts you on Stannis' side. Justin is to take Aya, quote-unquote, slash Jane Poole, north of him and deliver her to Jon Snow at Castle Black, because, as Stannis says here, a true king pays his debts. So we do have to admire Stannis a bit now. He obviously believes Jane to be Aya, and that means he believes she could actually be useful. That's what the Hill clans came for after all. This would be very useful in persuading other northern houses to come over. She's valuable, but Stannis is keeping to his word and giving Jon what he desires instead of keeping her for his own gain. It's pretty cool. Perhaps it's merely because he knows their chances and doesn't want the young child to die or be retaken. Perhaps he'd also prefer not to have a possible Stark inheritor around when he wins Winterfell. But either way, it is a cool moment because this would genuinely mean the world to Jon and Stannis is sticking to that word. Or at least it would be cool if Jon were alive or if Jane were actually Aya, unfortunately neither of those true are right now. And one of those issues Theon is aware of. Yes, Theon is actually in this chapter, you might have forgotten. And obviously he knows that once Jane reaches Jon, then the jig is finally up. Jon will know in an instant it's not Aya. We all know that Jon would still be more than kind to Jane. He'd look after her, I'm sure, even if another false promise of Aya would really crush his heart. But he would know, that's the point. Which would probably mean he'd tell Stannis. Although there is room for debate on that if Jane told Jon her tale. Maybe he wouldn't, maybe he would. But if Stan... But if word did get back to Stannis, and by some miracle Theon was still alive, well they'd know that Theon had never been fooled by Jane. he'd actually known the truth all along, and that's useful ammo to bring down the Bolton propaganda, sure, but there's no way Stannis would forgive those lies. Theon would be in major trouble. But we know the next movement of Jane Poole. Cruelly, she will be split from her saviour, one of the only people she understandably trusts in the world, in Theon. And that's a shame for both of them, but we have to take the overall view. Jane now gets further from the danger of battle, more importantly, she gets further away from Ramsay, and those are both good things. But now we also finally have it confirmed that Taicho and Justin and the rest of this group will be going via Castle Black. So all those earlier questions about what they will find there, they have even more layers now. What do they do if danger rules at Castle Black? We couldn't bear for Jane to be put in harm's way, which she legitimately could be if she ends up in Melisandre's hands. Aya, as sister to Rob, would have King's blood. With Jon out of the action, there's no one left to tell Melisandre of Jane's true identity. And that is definitely not an outcome that we like. Please don't 
that that happened that would be rough i'm not even going to go any further than that there remains the possibility that all are imprisoned or they've got to fight against the wildlings or really it could be anything we just don't know there's such chaos up there maybe john is even revived by the time they get there but much of the fandom take the option that he'll still be dead and justin massey will have to make the choice to take jane with him across the narrow sea instead of sending her back into a war zone especially if those rumors of stannis's demise are already out and about like we expect things could get very very complicated in the north which is saying something isn't it yes even more complicated than they already are soon we could have word spreading that both stannis and john are dead with it then not being true soon after or maybe it will be true soon after for both of them or one of them again confusing consider that justin might learn of john's death and send word back to stannis how will that affect the king's plan but of more interest to us is jane because many believe that if jane is to travel across to bravos well it all just fits way too nicely for her not to run into the girl she's been impersonating for all this time Arya stark yeah we've spoken about this possibility before because it does seem to fit so well who knows what face Arya herself will have on and whether jane will know who she's talking to but Arya would definitely recognize jane she'll have yet another interaction with her old life the strongest yet given that jane actually comes from a time before her whole life changed and if jane talks about all that's happened to sansa and then what's happened to her up in the north well it could very easily be this that finally spurs Arya to head back to west to her homeland jane could be an even bigger hook than rafford was or perhaps even those interactions coming quite close together maybe they combine and really push Aya back maybe she just can't escape it perhaps Aya doesn't even have to converse with jane maybe she just overhears her talking about it or just sees her being named Aya or something like that and i've seen it suggested that instead of going to the riverlands like i'd prefer Aya might take the more straight route back to the north with justin taking jane's place by now impersonating a person who is supposed to be impersonating her in the first place i think george would quite like that level of irony of course that would probably require jane's death perhaps by being given the gift of mercy from Aya. Uh, i'm hoping that's not the case but it is possible i suppose she could just be left behind but i mean yes, that's probably still not great for jane mm, we'll see but given that Aya's return is one of the things that we most want out of everything, it's incredibly exciting. And consider this. What if Jane tells Aya that Jon Snow is dead? Well, it's Heartbreak City for her, first of all. Of course, that would definitely be a hard chapter to read. But it would also be Vengeance City. How easily we could see this breaking Aya's shield. With her finally abandoning whatever mission she's on with the Faceless Men. And just going straight off to avenge her brother. Yes, we would be worried about Jane, but still, we would really, really like to see that. Truly, there's so many possibilities, and a lot of them really huge for the plot we did briefly touch on those possibilities when we covered the mercy chapter though maybe not as much as we might like there's just so many different avenues that could bring Aya back so many different hooks as we witnessed in mercy the hook is one of our biggest wants for any character Aya returning home so you know we're all going to be paying extra attention but like i say what of jane does she stick with justin forever what about if he does hire the cell swords and needs to return for either stannis or shireen does jane go back with him maybe she doesn't ever meet Aya, or does he end up abandoning his mission and staying with her in bravos it'd be nice to imagine jane just getting to live out the story in the comfort of bravos but that's probably a dream it's a dream we like other possibilities include jane never getting across to bravos at all depending on what the state of castle black is i mean anything could happen like we just said if it is stable enough for Celeste to get a hold of her and with john not being around to tell anyone the truth of her identity maybe she gets married off to one of the queen's men but then what when john assumedly wakes will he come for her and by the by something to consider is if john is if jane does go on to bravos imagine john's feelings when he wakes up from death and is told his 
sister was actually there inches from him but then moved on again he'll feel worse than ever if things are super unstable at castle black and there's only wildlings in control or who knows what's going on well, it's probably not best to dwell on it we like that life in bravos idea much better even if it is difficult to imagine how she could survive there if her eye status is removed maybe she can just keep it up forever as a foreign princess on the run we have seen that before in the histories of these lands, so maybe it's possible, but I'm pretty stumped. Back in the here and now, Stannis tells Justin they will have the Black Brothers as an escort, but the Ironborn, freed from Deepwood Mott, Triss Botley and the Sword, are to remain here to join in the fighting. So that's pretty cool because we know how much that would mean to Asher. And speaking of, Stannis believes that Aya should have a woman with her for the journey, and because he also happens to think that women don't belong in his army, he chooses Alessane Mormont, and that provides us with some more intrigue. Do the Mormonts actually know know of dual Mormont's fate? You would think so by now. I'm sure a letter's been delivered to Bear Isle, but I just can't remember actually being brought up. If it hasn't, Alessane would certainly learn of that, wouldn't she? At the very least, I think this has got to be significant that Ali is going up there. With Mage in hiding for quite a while now, Alessane is pretty much the head of the household. So the rule of House Mormont going up to the wall, that's got to be something to watch because we know the connection between the two parties there. And I personally hope it means we'll get to see a lot more of her than we did in Dance. I don't know about you, but I always remembered her getting a lot more attention in that book than she actually did, so I'm crossing my fingers because she is a very cool character. She's the one who really represents that she-bear image the best. She's certainly called that name often enough in those chapters. She carries the mage torch better than poor Daisy did, so what's in her future? It's damn near impossible to guess again given how little we know of Castle Black right now. But hey, it might be important to have the head of a major northern family on hand to watch John's resurrection. That could be key, especially when he's the former apprentice of your former family ruler. So I really like that idea of House Mormont being the first to swear to John, or however you want to frame it. Maybe she's got particular interest in Longclaw or something like that. I don't know, but I think there is something there, so I'm looking forward to it. Justin makes yet another suggestion. If we're getting the women folk out of the way of your male-only army, why not send Asher as well? And in all fairness, he actually gets Stannis thinking on it for a bit, but is ultimately denied. A shame for him, because we know how much he'd like Asher along for the trip, but both of them together, out of the snow and the war, well, it doesn't get much better, does it? It does make you wonder if Stannis also chose Justin so he could get one of his most faithless Amoni out of the way without killing him. That's possible. Because Justin decides to keep going with his persuasion. In for a penny, in for a pound. And he reminds us, however fond he might be of Asher, he's also a hungry guy looking for that title. Citing the need to one day take the Iron Islands, he also innocently suggests that that could be done by marrying Asher to one of his legal men. A legal man about to do a cross-continental mission for you, perhaps. He dismisses Asher's marriage to Eric Ironmaker as well. He's obviously been giving it some thought. Stannis, quite cleverly, decides to give some extra motivation to Justin. If he succeeds in this recruitment drive, then he can have both Asher and his title, but for now, Stannis is keeping her. If he's sending Jane away and going to kill Theon, well, what's a camp without prisoners? You're going to need someone to fill the fetters, aren't you? It is a good way to spur Justin on, though, and probably nothing will come of it anyway. Justin has to survive all that way and back. Asher has to survive the coming battle and not become a sacrifice. Stannis would stick to his word if it comes to it, but he probably won't have to. Next quote. So Justin bowed his head. I understand. That only seemed to irritate the king. Your understanding is not required. Only your obedience. Be on your way, sir. I just think that's a quality Stannis line. We've got a lot to pick from in terms of Stannis quality lines in this chapter, but that's one of them. So Justin finally leaves, taking Taicho, Alisane, and our dearest Jane out of this part of the plot for good. And there's no Alisane for Asher anymore either, which is a shame. They had some cool interactions, and Asher was at least relatively safe under the She-Bear's protection. That's no longer true. 
And yeah, I do think her emotions are hurt. Do say goodbye to Jane. She's a big worry for us. We want her to be okay. We've had to focus on her a lot of late. We don't know what's coming next for her. As we've seen, Stannis is an incredibly busy man. Such is the value of this chapter. From the outside with Asher, it looked like he was just holed up in his tower, brooding with no idea what to do. Now we're on the inside, we see that the guy doesn't stop. It's a hive of activity as he tries to win this war. Now, in basically his first break from people coming through the door, he takes the chance to start asking Fionn intelligence questions, and he doesn't hang around. No pun intended. Let's start off the most important. How many men does Bolton have? Fionn says, five or six thousand, which we know to be basically true. The point is, however many it is, it's more than Stannis. That's the critical part. Next then, how many of those will go out into the field? Fionn guesses only about half. That's a guess, but it's a well-reasoned one. Roos doesn't need to send out troops en masse. He's the one with Winterfell. He can spend half his force decimating Stannis, and even if by some miracle they fail, Stannis will then still have to beat Bolton's best, plus Winterfell's insane defences, the undefeatable ones. Yes, he needs shot of a few thanks to the overcrowding and the tension, but we've seen him make moves to relieve that with the phrase and mandates already, as Fionn relates to Stannis here. Still, it's incredibly important information being given over. This is the kind of thing that commanders in war can only dream of, this level of intelligence and uh, detail and insight. Stannis's anger flares at the mention of these two parties riding towards him in the phrase of Mandalese. Importantly, he is 100% bought into Wyoming Mandalay supporting the Boltons. Now, we all know the truth, but Stannis obviously does not, and it's hard to imagine him listening to any attempts at persuading him otherwise. Stannis and Wyman could really do some devastation together if they actually teamed up, but Wyman's act so far has been too good. Specifically, Stannis believes that Wyman killed Davos, and you can be sure he is going to repay that. So even if the Mandalays do prove that they want to fight against the Boltons, perhaps they'll fight the phrase in front of Stannis or something of that nature, but even if they do, I can't see them persuading Stannis on the Davos issue because what evidence can really be supplied. We'd all love for them to join up given their shared purpose but the chances look slim and there's always the chance that Wyman doesn't want to get too close because he intends to place Rickon in Winterfell should Davos return. And Stannis is not much more fond of the phrase, of course. You can imagine he has always hated this family because of their nature, but their crimes recently would throw them even further down his like list, ignoring the fact that he was actually hoping for Rob's death and even burned the leech to that effect, but we'll forget that for now. He cannot understand why any Northerners would deign to fight alongside those who wronged them so. One of Stannis' shortcomings is not understanding how many of these smaller houses have had to put up with the phrase or risk destruction. They didn't have any choice. In Stannis' mind, it's always an easy choice. Just choose destruction, of course. That's what you should do. Hmm. Others aren't so easily convinced. Fionn assures him that all is remembered, which we know to be true about certain members of Team Bolton, but focuses on what it actually means for now. He says that Mandalay and Frey will ride together against Stannis, which is strange because he knows the relationship between the two and he himself theorised that the two parties would fight each other first. So perhaps he's still trying to intimidate Stannis a bit, or doesn't want to give away too much. But most of all, he wants to highlight Ramsay, who he believes will be coming along after them in search of both himself and Jane. Now, Jane at least appears to be safe, or she soon will be, but Fionn still has plenty of reason to worry. Stannis is still not intimidated. He lists off his military victories. One against Fionn's own family then the Siege of Storm's End, then Dragonstone. He conveniently leaves out the Blackwater and skips straight ahead to the Wall, and he also leaves out Deepwood Mop for some reason. But either way, why should he be worried about the bastard? Fionn cringes at that title again, and he tries to warn Stannis that Ramsay is as unknown as you can get. He's just not like other people. Stannis does not bulk though. Ramsay has won no true battle, he says, only a rout that he earned by trickery. And he does not know Stannis either. So you've got to really hope that this king isn't being set up for a fool because we genuinely would love to see him teach Ramsay a very harsh lesson. Now the door opens again and it's back to business. 
The Karstarks have arrived. First comes Twisted Arnolf, who Fionn saw back at the Dreadfort. His second-born son, Arthur, is next. Remember, his first son, Cregan, is still a prisoner up at Castle Black, working his way to becoming an ice cube. He is followed by three of his grandsons. We have this quote from Fionn's inner monologue. One wore chainmail. The rest were dressed for breakfast, not for battle. Fools. That's a great way for George to get our appetites up. Aside from Alice, we've not been a fan of this family for quite a while now, especially of what they've been up to lately. But we know we're about to see some just desserts. A win for the good guys and we can hardly wait. The tension's right up there, we're hungry. And we don't have to wait too long for such satisfaction. It begins very similarly to what happened with the Maester. An instant realisation, this time on the face of Arnolf Karstark. Because he sees Fionn and he knows precisely what it means. He was at the dreadful. He heard. He knows. Which opens the door for Stannis to be pretty awesome. There are no chairs, the oaf observed. One of the ravens screamed inside its cage. Only mine, King Stannis sat in it. It is no iron throne, but here and now it suits. We've seen him investigating, we've seen him delegating, gathering intelligence, giving orders and more in this chapter already. Now we get to see the king in action, a basic chair for a straightforward monarch. Here comes his judgement as Richard Horpe and Clayton Suggs lead in their soldiers behind the Karstarks. You are dead men, understand that, the king went on. Only the manner of your dying remains to be determined. You would be well advised not to waste my time with denials. Confess, and you shall have the same swift end that the young wolf gave Lord Rickard. Lie, and you will burn. Choose. I gotta admit, I love these lines. I love Stannis not beating around the bush. I love George really letting himself go with Stannis a bit here. I think the whole chapter is a rejuvenation for this character who did get frozen out in dance, who was made to look down the barrel of a fairly pathetic end. Now we have him active again. We have him diving into his purpose and embracing that purpose, embracing his kingship at the same time and himself having fun of it. He's dropping these great lines. He's really maxed out on screen, so to speak. I think that's perhaps a message from George of what we're going to be getting from Stannis in this book. No holds barred, all out there, 110%, ready to do his thing. In this instance, it's straight down to business. There's to be no argument or time for debate. It has been decided and he is not bending whatsoever, even less than usual. And he actually kind of champions Rob's choice for Rickard as well, which I kind of like. He gives them the option, in all fairness, honour or flame, which is no more than they deserve. This is one of the better Stannis moments in my opinion. This is what I'm talking about. We get so many in this chapter, they really do stand out. Two of the grandsons, imbibed with the foolishness of youth, tried to fight back and both receive injuries that will probably kill them before they even get to make their choice. Arnoff and his son never moved, already fully aware of their fate. It does compare fairly well to John's actions with Cregan, just to draw some more comparison lines between he and Stannis, even if Stannis is actually way more of it is rights here than John is. But that's that, it's done. No fuss, no hesitation, their betrayal was discovered, Stannis dealt with it. It's a man with many faults, but sometimes you do have to admire his approach. Turning the cloak is one of the worst things you can do, and he's just proved he will not suffer those who do so. And he says such to Fionn, who will no longer allow himself to be stuck with that particular label. He insists on the use of his proper name, and in fairness, Stannis obliges. Perhaps because he admires Fionn sticking to that last piece of himself, or perhaps just because he wants the information. The next question he asks is about the Umbers which is fitting, seeing as we just dealt with the Karstarks. He wants to know how many men Morse has outside the walls of Winterfell. Or, he thinks he wants to know until Fionn delivers the truth. He has no men, only boys. On the flip side, Horsbane only has the old guys. The Umbers have been decimated by the fighting. All their prime warriors have already gone in the War of the Five Kings. This is what they had left, and they decided they would go out fighting instead of cowering, splitting their chances as we've seen other families do historically. 
Stannis isn't too bothered about Horsebane right now though. It was Moore's that was basically his first line of defence, and he was doing a great job of confusing the Boltons, keeping them awake. He played a part in their cracking of Bolton team unity. But when it comes to actual war, when the Boltons ride in force, will they be able to delay them enough to matter? Stannis, Theon, and one of the Ravens all agree that no, they probably won't. As great as it is to see Stannis be so resolute and planning and giving judgement and all those other things, this chapter has given him little else but bad news. Well aware of that, he chooses to try and confirm an actual good rumour for once, one that is actually news to us, the death of Aenys Frey. Moors is apparently useful for more than just keeping people away. His green boys might lose in a straight up fight, but they can pull some deadly pranks first. In this case, they used the incredibly thick storm to dig pits right outside the castle gate. Remember how poor the visibility was in those Fion chapters, he couldn't even see across the yard. With the digging done, well that's when he started blowing the horns that we heard in Fion's chapter. Mors was hoping that Roos himself would ride up, fall into one of those hidden pits and break his neck. Well it wasn't Roos, but the phrase did ride out on Aenys, one half of the leadership team did fall, did break his neck and now goes to join his sons in pie heaven. The only shame is that we didn't get to see it live because we do love a Frey death. Not only do we have one less Frey, but Stannis is pretty pleased because Hostine Frey is now 100% in charge of the Frey contingent. And he's angry, but he's also stupid. And that's the exact mix that Stannis could take advantage of right now with his lake plan. He expands on his confidence, claiming that Roose has made a mistake and given Stannis a fighting chance. Though the enemy holds all the advantages right now, Stannis is convinced that the territory, the superior planning, will give him the victory. Yes, it does get your blood pumping again, and you can see how it breathes life into the theories of potholed lakes and misleading lamps, and, most importantly, more fray deaths. Especially in terms of Hostine, because he is angry. He is the type to charge forward, not thinking about the territory. So that's exactly what we like for the Frozen Lake theory. Feel though, he's not convinced. He doesn't think they have any natural defences. Stannis says, not yet. The man most thought to be doing nothing is obviously planning something. He's been like Stannis the Swan. It looks like he's not moving, but it's all going on underneath. He does have a plan, one that does include punching holes through the ice more so than they have already. The Ravens both agree with Stannis again, but one seems fixated on the word tree. There is a single weirwood tree out on them lakes you'll remember from Ash's chapter. They're smart little ravens, but we'll come back to them in a moment. The door opens once more, likely revealing a white dawn outside. Richard Hawke returns, caked in snow, to inform that the Karstark men were taken as planned with minimal casualties. Most of them claim that they knew nothing of the betrayal and they're currently confined to the long haul that we saw in Ash's chapters. As we mentioned earlier, Stannis believes them as he figures there's no way the secret could have held if they or even some of them knew. Arnolf was banking on the fact that when the time came and he gave the order to betray Stannis, his men would obey their lord because that's what Karstarks do. In fact, it's Stannis who says that and it sounds like he's giving them considerable respect because we know he likes the loyal, simple soldier life. Horp brings up another important consideration, the effect this is having on the camp. A huge portion of their number have just been arrested and none of them know why. Your mind would automatically go to betrayal, but who else might be a turncloak? The guy next to you? Your captain or sergeant? Are you going to be accused next? Remember, this is a camp with many different factions. They are already frowning at each other. They're already in horrific conditions without having to side-eye the guy next to them. We must recall also that Stannis has been squirreled away. Hardly any of them have seen him. They've got zero idea what's going on or what the plan is or any of that. They've been told to sit and wait and freeze and die. And they've been doing exactly that. So yes, when something like this happens, one, you pay attention just because it's something that's happening and you're bored, but it also reminds you of how little you know and how much you want to know. Hence, they are gathering around the tower. They want some answers. Stannis essentially has to make a public address very soon or he risks losing the discipline of the camp which would be an even bigger disaster. Yet he will not rush. Even when he's told that Big Bucket and Artos Flint really want to talk to him, 
it is their fellow Northmen who've just been arrested after all, Stannis makes them wait. First comes Asher. Yes, finally, the guest we would want to see the most, our beloved Asher, who not only means a lot to us, but to Fionn as well, returns to the story. And Fionn revisits their reunion that we witnessed at the end of Dance. We only saw the very beginning of it before George cut away, but we spoke lengthily on the different meanings it would have to each sibling and how much of a big deal this was to both of them. Outside of House Stark, I don't think there's that many reunions that could mean more. Unfortunately, it was not plain sailing, as we predicted back in Dance, and Fionn tells us here. It wasn't a simple hug and everything was well type of deal. As we go down memory lane with Fionn, while he starts with the huge pain it caused him to see the look on Asha's face, she physically recoiled when she realised who he was. Fionn spent an entire book getting those type of looks, some from people who even knew him beforehand, but this is obviously something else entirely. This is someone who knew him from beforehand, really knew him, has known him his whole life. She watched at least a decent chunk of his childhood, she met the young man he'd become, and now she sees this. And that hurts him so much more, to see that look on the face of a loved one. It will make his shame that much worse, that he's the cause of that look, that he let this happen to him. Of course, it's all unfair, but it is how he feels. We already know how much proving things to his family was a big deal to him, and Asher was part of that. In former books, he wanted to impress her. Now, he has this instead. It makes it that much more real now, to see that look on someone who will always be part of your life in one way or another. It makes the pain that much more permanent. When Asher asked if the bastard was the one who did this to him, Theon offered his usual refrain, but he also finally let his trauma out. He was finally away from Ramsay, at least for a while. He was in another camp entirely. He knows he's only got minutes of Asher, and he's finally with someone who might theoretically care. So, as Theon shows us here, in the text, it's a really important moment when he says all the things that have happened to him out loud. For many of them, it's the first time any have actually been spoken. That's a big part of the recovery, the acceptance, the speaking into existence, the confirmation. True acceptance and healing, they're both still a long, long way off, but this is a beginning, it's just an incredibly painful one. But he does it, right from the cruel games of Kyra, to his maiming, and to saving Jane, his proudest moment of course. And with that comes extra details like Abel and his washerwomen, stuff that makes no sense about the context, but he has no time for any of that right now. He just has to get it all out, he has to get it across. Still, it might be important for our purposes to remember all the little clues that Asha got during that reunion, because you never know which one will turn out to be important down the road. She has to understand. She is my sister. Yes, Fionn hits on that oh-so-rare familial connection again. His speech becomes haphazard now. He's jumping from protesting innocence to explaining how bad he's had it, and he's into stuff that would make no sense at all. The missing swords and the crypts, the heart tree speaking his name, calling him Fionn, and how desperately important that part is. Fionn. He never wants to forget again. These parts sound like the ravings of a madman, and when combined with his physical state and what's been done to him, perhaps that is what Asher believes he is. It'd be hard to blame her if so. Obviously, we know better. The experience was incredibly emotion for tough as nails Asher as well. She could hardly believe what she was seeing. Her reaction makes Fionn think of his time travelling through the snow with Jane. He's touched on it a few times throughout the chapter, but he offers much more information on how it affected her. Though they had achieved a great thing in getting out of Winterfell, there's no easy remedy for what either of them had gone through. Much as it breaks our hearts, it's completely understandable why Jane was weeping throughout the journey. Some of it from trauma, some of it from pain, some from cold, and a lot of it from Fionn saying that she still has to be Higher. Jane probably wanted to believe that she could finally drop that once outside the walls, and again we can't blame her. Look at all that happened while she had to wear that disguise. As it was back in dance, 
Theon is only doing this to help her out. Her reveal as Jane wouldn't be anywhere near as dangerous in Stannis' camp as it would in Winterfell, but it definitely wouldn't help. The safest option is to stay as Arya, as this chapter has proven with her now being sent away. Losing some of her nose to Frostbite also doesn't help. We know Jane already has scars that she'll never be rid of, but now there's another one. But Theon had kept up his reassurance the whole way. He'd got her there, he'd delivered her to safety, and I predict when we look back, one of the cruelest things will be that he didn't get to say goodbye. But he did save her, and that he must remember. Still, the memories of both Asher and Jane are painful, and that pain makes Fionn remember the physical pain he's in right now, back in the tower. He's been hanging by his wrist this entire time. It's unimaginable. So much so that he begs Stannis to give him just a little break, even though he must know it's pointless. Stannis doesn't even reply. At this point, just as Asher enters the room, things get a little bit creepy. Tree! A raven cried. Tree! 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 Then, another bird said, Fionn. Clear as day, as Asher came striding through the door. Yes, we mentioned the bird saying tree earlier, but I would say to most it doesn't stick out half as much. Now though, the repetition of tree is one thing, but the next, the raven out and out saying Fion. Well, unless Fion is actually having a mental breakdown, then this really, really sticks out to us as something weird. And most of us would sip straight over to Bran, just as we did when Fion was listening to the heart tree, because Bran equals heart tree, or weirwood tree, to so many of us now. We discussed that at length at the time. Besides, the thematics of the thing made so much sense with Fionn finally facing up to his crimes and how Bran was the one affected by them, etc, etc. So we absolutely thought that this was Bran talking through the weirwood net to Fionn, that it was him who gave Fionn the gift of his name and that sense of self back. That was a very, very important moment, one of the most emotional of the book. It came with a lot of questions about whether this was Bran from the future, talking back to now, the present, or current Bran up there in the cave using his powers to look at the present instead. And he's not supposed to be able to do this, remember? Bloodraven said he couldn't actually make impressions on the world or change anything, or at least he couldn't in the past, so is this just further evidence that Bran is doing this in the here and now, when he can still affect things? At the very least, it's a signal of increased power. We know he can access weirwoods, okay, but now he looks like he can do stuff remotely as well. We know he can walk a raven, but a raven thousands of miles away? Two ravens at once? These are markers that we didn't get to witness when he made his early exit from Dance, but they stand to reason as powers that he could have gained by now under Bloodraven's tutelage. Unless it's actually Bloodraven doing this, whether for his own ends or for Bran's, I mean, no idea. Or could Bran be doing it without Bloodraven's knowledge, doing it in secret? It's possible. Either way, if Bran can now access any raven he seemingly likes whenever he fancies, that opens up a whole world of possibilities for how we can interact with the rest of the world during wins. The next question is why. Why is Bran taking such an interest in Fionn's fate at the moment? What role does that play? We know the terms are linked via family and the recent events as covered, but if Bran is supposed to be saving the world and getting on with the important stuff, why does he seem exclusively focused on Fionn lately? What importance does he play? This is questions on top of questions, of course. Is it merely because he knows Fionn is going to die soon and is trying to adjust how? Are him and Bloodraven the enemies of Rulor, like Melisandre said, and they just want to stop as many burnings as they can? Or do they need blood sacrifices in front of a weirwood tree to sustain them? Do they want that blood? Blood that may or may not count as king's blood thanks to Balon's self-crowning. Or is it part of a specific plan? Is it as simple as Bran knows Fionn is in pain and wants to give him the ending that his father would have done? The ravens do speak up after Fionn complains of the pain, so as possible. There's a lot of possibilities going on here. Whatever it is, no one but Fionn seems to notice just yet, but the atmosphere has most definitely changed. Triss and Carl are there with Asher. 
It's cool to see them, isn't it? Cool to see Asher has them both back, even if they are dismissed immediately from this scene. They're fan favourites, and we look forward to getting our hands on an Asher chapter eventually, and seeing how their presence has affected her, and how those very different relationships have grown. But for now, Asher begins by almost repeating word for word what Fionn said earlier about him not deserving to hang up on the wall like this, chained like that, after what he did at Winterfell. So it's quite cool to see how they aligned, even though neither of them knew it. The king's mouth twitched. You have a bold tongue, my lady. Not unlike your turncloak brother. Thank you, your grace. It was not a compliment. Classic Hasha, that is. Stannis goes on to explain about the lack of dungeons and the surplus of expected prisoners, which is actually pretty Stannis-like and quite funny as well, that Fionn isn't hanging up there so much as to punish him, but because there's nowhere else to put him. And Stannis figures that this is as good a place as any. But then, also, he most likely wants to keep Fionn close to him, given the information that he holds. Asha's next stop on the awesomeness tour is to offer to ransom Fionn, a sentence that surely must settle somewhere deep in his heart. Stannis' refusal is swift and ironclad, but then that was probably expected by everyone including Asher, and the explanation is fairly justified as well. As we touched on earlier, if Fionn is shown any sort of mercy, then Stannis will lose every single one of his Northmen. It simply cannot happen. Fionn's crimes are too great, and he confirms he is considering burning him just so both sides can be happy. He not only considers this justice, but a tactical decision, believing that his men will fight harder if they believe their god has been given their due. He mentions again that the Boltons will be at their door soon enough. It is the constant thought that is with him. It is his only goal. Asha claims she has not come to beg for her brother's life, though it does mention that his death will destroy whatever remains of Alanis Harlaw, their mother, and you get the feeling that Asha brings this up because if she doesn't, then no one will and it deserves to be known. To his credit, Stannis says he is sorry for Alanis, which is more of a nod than most give her, but that doesn't change facts. Fionn's fate is sealed. Your brother must die, then do the deed yourself, your grace. Asha says this in a voice so cold, it drills right down into Fionn, as she makes the argument that we've already discussed. A sibling commenting on how a fellow sibling should die. Well, we've seen that often enough with some other families, but we've never seen it in quite this context. This is Asha trying her very best to give some mercy to her younger brother, someone she has her own very, very complicated past with. At the end of her dance arc, after she'd been imprisoned and she had to face her own possible death, when she'd had the time to do plenty of thinking and reflecting, she gave some time to focusing on that relationship with Fionn, the brief one they had as children, the even briefer they had as adults. First, the competition, the mockery from Asha's side, their respective parts in the northern invasion, and then what's happened since. That was all topped off with that incredibly emotional moment of realising what Fionn had become when he came out of the snow. She knew it'd be bad, but truly, this was something else. This was unimaginable. We won't go over all the intricacies of that too much because we did it at the time and a little bit earlier, but one of the things we don't get in this chapter that we'd really love is how Asha's dealt with that reunion since then. Because there's heaps to process, it's not like she's in the best place herself either anyway, and though the appearance of her friends is a definite upswing, it's still difficult. But in the time since, she's had to accept the reality of Fionn, get through the positive emotions of finding him again, then deal with the negative of what's passed between them, and then come to a decision on what she can realistically do to help. As we can see, she's settled on that getting of mercy, that preferred death. And we're only seeing the end result of all those emotions. Imagine how difficult a roadblock that is to get through, accepting that she cannot save him from Stannis, or from death. Perhaps she even thinks that he doesn't deserve to be saved, although probably not. Everything she briefly hoped about the Fionn latecomer idea, the fact that she has so little family left, that whole feeling of having no direction that we discussed earlier in her dance arc, all of that would go against the notion, but she's come to a dead end. There is only one way this can end for Fionn, seemingly, and she's going to try and influence it as much as possible. And because she's smart and wonderful, Asha will pitch the perfect argument. Take him out across the lake to the islet where the weirwood grows, and strike his head off with that sorcerer's sword you bear. That is how Eddard Stark would have done it. Fionn slew Lord Eddard's sons. 
Give him to Lord Eddard's gods, O gods of the north. Give him to the tree. This is very clever, very persuasive stuff. At the beginning, Asher notes that Stannis can use Lightbringer to do the deed. Any public opportunity to get Lightbringer out and show off to the cap is a very good idea. He hasn't had much opportunity lately, perhaps because he knows he needs Melisandre for the fireworks, but this is a good way to get it out and remind all these very cold people what they are fighting for. Invoking the name of Eddard Stark is even wiser. Stannis respected Ned, we know that for a fact. That we're in Ned's land, fighting for Ned's castle, with Ned's men, many of whom are literally only here to serve the Ned. Well, that means emulating the man will help bridge that gap with the Northerners and win more of their loyalty. He can even double up on that idea. Politically, he will show he is dedicated to the same justice that Ned was famous for. He can be an effective ruler. But as Asher next points out, it will also be a gift to the old gods, who the majority of his camp still worship. So, give the nod to them. Again, get the thumbs up from your Normaners who've had to watch all these burnings lately. Get them more on side. Besides, this kind of argument just works on Stannis, of all people. He's all about the justice, the correct justice. Well, it all just fits so neatly, doesn't it? The narrative works. Stannis would kill Theon for crimes against House Stark, so it's best to use House Stark's punishment. That sounds right. So yes, very, very smart from Asher. But the reason behind those smarts is one we're well aware of. Asher does not want Theon to burn. The latter part of her dance arc was focused on that terrible aspect of this camp. She was made to watch. She was told she'd be next. She had to think on how it was just about the worst thing imaginable. Remember those who had been caught cannibalising another. The punishment that they faced. Whatever happened before, whatever happened since. She does not want that for Theon. Asher literally had a chapter called the sacrifice. It is supposed to be a big part of her character arc. At the time, we were worried that was because she herself would be burned. Luckily not, although the danger of that has never really fully passed. So perhaps the link of Asher and the theme of sacrifice is actually pointed towards other people. Perhaps her role is to steer her brother away from that awful burning ending and towards the one that he himself is hoping for. The one that links up much better thematically for him, as we discussed earlier, and is a better repayment for his specific crimes and probably a better honorific for the few good things he's done. There's also a really good chance that this link to sacrifice might extend out to other characters. Perhaps she will save Fionn from the flames, but Asher is still a prime candidate to be either the POV for, or at least witness to, Shireen's burning, or maybe Gilly's son, or both, which is unpleasant to think about, to say the least. We definitely don't want Asher to have to witness those things, but we could see a route to such still being open. But for now, back in the more definitive, she's just doing what she can. This is her token of sibling love. As soon as she's done giving her well-reasoned arguments, the ravens react instantly, wildly. This idea was their buzzer. They are all for it, and they let it be known. The tree, one squawked. The tree, the tree. Whilst the second screamed only, Theon, Theon, Theon. I'd forgot the eeriness of this ending, if I'm honest. It comes out of left field, and though the ravens have been present for the majority of the chapter, there's no ignoring them this time. This isn't the quick, off-the-cuff little squawk where characters can just mentally bypass. They aren't just repeating the last word they heard. They say, tree, 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 and that's true, true, true. But they also add on Theon, free Theons for fans of George's use of that particular pattern. They are making the connection. They have gone a step further and are obviously displaying more intelligence or bewitchment or whatever you want to call it than before. So while we unfortunately don't get to see it, we've got to think that all our present characters actually stop and notice this time round. It's kind of hard to ignore, surely. Fionn certainly does. He gives his wry smile. He concentrates on the importance of his name again, just to keep our theme sense strong. But what about the other two? The ravens are screaming, they are making themselves heard, and they're intelligible. So what happens next? 
It's a question we've really not had to ask ourselves yet. Talking ravens, they've been present all the way through the series, and we know Lord Mormont's raven especially has been talking more of late, so it's risen, it's been bubbling away, but we've really not had to get to this level right now where they're forcing themselves into the narrative. They're going to have an effect. I don't think they can be ignored this time. This is another marker of a change in the story, of us reaching the next level. Now that this magical element is firmly entrenched in the storyline. But like I say, what happens next? Well, Stannis has seen some pretty weird stuff before. Some of it he tries to ignore best he can, but he knows deep down of his existence. Yet this, specifically, is still a new area. Talking birds giving advice on what he wants to do. It'd be pretty funny to imagine a scene where Stannis gets annoyed. Oh, come on, that kind of thing. How many more magical elements am I going to have to put up with? I've already got Melisandre up to no good when I'm asleep and all these things. Can't it ever be simple? No, there's talking birds as well. Then again, many of us figure that Stannis is going to get really, really involved with the otherworldly aspects of the North before long, talking about the others. So maybe this is just baby steps for him. But that's all far off, though. How does Stannis react in the immediate right now? Could he go against Ash's wishes just to dig his heels in and make it seem like he's not taking advice from some birds? Well, you can picture it, but I think actually Stannis just grumbles a little bit and ignores the ravens as best he can. His mind at the moment is still way too focused on actual stuff like warfare and ruling to let any of the magical in right now, at least too much. He's well practiced at shoving certain issues to the side for a while, so I figure he will do the same. Certainly, I don't think Raven suddenly agreeing will make him more likely to kill Fionn in this way. I think Ash's argument would have done that for him. Speaking of, how does Asha react? She's basically seen none of the magical stuff in her arc just yet, but she does have that weird relationship with all things Norman, the land that came alive and seemed to banish her away in her first dance chapter, if you remember. So if anything, I think she becomes slightly unnerved, and puts it down to that, the power of the North and these old gods and things of that nature. Religion or magic or whatever you want to call it have been topics discussed in her recent chapters, so that'd make sense. But I definitely think it does creep her out at least a little bit, especially when she was the one that made the decision. Are the Northern gods hungry for her brother? Are they agreeing with her? It's all pretty weird stuff. And then Theon, well, he clearly does hear them at the end, but perhaps he does just think it's part of his mental breaking. His evidence is mounting for that, he's heard voices a lot lately. Or maybe he also buys into the this is how things are supposed to be idea. This is the right punishment for his crimes that the old gods are speaking to him about. He heard them before, he hears them now, maybe he's persuaded. That would be tough to swallow though, the fact that the all-powerful want your life ended, that it seems destined that way. But it will also perhaps link well into his confessions, his acceptance of what he deserves, and all that kind of thing that we discussed a lot in Dance. Besides, they are agreeing with what he wanted. He'd rather not be killed at all, sure, when you get down to it, but he definitely doesn't want the flames. Asha definitely doesn't want the flames. Neither do the ravens, or the north, or the old gods. So you could easily see Fionn embracing this kind of thing, and perhaps even getting a bit obsessed with it. Maybe he really does think the old gods are speaking to him, and their world is law, and he's got to obey whatever they say. Maybe there's a bit of his uncle in him in that way. What probably none of them will do is connect it with Bran. Maybe Fionn if we get some other interactions with the Ravens, but probably not even when we all assume that to be the case, that it is Bran. Bran affecting the present from the future, or extending his warging powers or whatever it might be, as we mentioned earlier on. I mean, whatever it is, it's a fucking huge deal either way. The point is, however he's doing it, he is interacting with the world again. He's influencing it in however small a way, which throws open some frankly massive doors of how else he might do the same. And I don't need to tell you about all those because they are likely endless. And I know we've all spent a good deal of time imagining such. How Bran will get back to the world, what powers he'll have, what different conduits he could use, 
the mind boggles i'm sure it really does run away with you as it does for me but the fact it's here now is what's so cool we've got to that point in the story where bran will be returning to the main story spiritually if not physically i very much doubt this will be the end of such interactions either i can easily picture Fionn being taken out to the island in the tree and there being like a thousand ravens there making a fuss or whatever they're going to do we still don't really know whether bran is for this option or against it which will also indicate what the ravens do but it is easily imaginable them either coring down in defiance or encouragement. It just makes for such a creepy scene, doesn't it? The other thing it's a sign of is Bran just getting involved in what's happening in Winterfell. That's something else we discussed in late Fionn Dance chapters. How much has Bran seen through the Weirwood at Winterfell? Is he aware that his home is now alive again, no longer abandoned? We know how important that would be to him because he was linked very much to Winterfell when he left. He was saying that it wasn't quite dead and neither was he. It was just kind of resting. That one's alive, so should he be coming back to the world of the living now? I wonder if that's become his sole focus, whether that's approved of by Bloodraven or not. Bloodraven might not want him looking for home. He might want him on task. But Bran, again, the hook. We're always talking about the hook for him and I and the other Starks as well. This could be what brings him back in. I won't take you into that whole discussion again because we have before, but I do think that's very, very similar, the thing with Aya. And it makes you wonder if he's going to play a much larger role in this coming battle than we thought of beforehand. If he can have a thousand ravens, or however many ravens, making a noise by the tree on the isle, could he also send them to Winterfell? Could he influence the battle some way? I'm not sure I can picture it going that far, but imagine if he sent a whole flock of ravens down the Boltons, pecking away at the eyes of Roost or Ramsay or whoever. That would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Even if we're not going to go that far, perhaps he could use it to view the battle. That is what he's supposed to be doing, watching and seeing all these things. And just imagine that. The cinematics of being able to see an entire battle, one of the biggest we're going to get in this series, over the mighty, detailed landscape of Winterfell. To be able to see all different moving parts of a battle at once in one POV. It would be literally unlike anything we've ever seen before from a battle scene in these books. And the possibility is exhilarating. Just, it'd be very, very similar to stuff we saw in the show. I really does excite me just the thought of that one bird going all the way around the castle and seeing these different battles because normally obviously we're tied to one pov Tyrion could only see so much of the black water barristan will only see so much of the battle of marine bran could be seeing everything at once and also not only that but as far as commentators on this battle you couldn't really pick anyone else better than bran because he knows the castle better than anyone he knows what's what, he knows where's where, that would be amazing. And it would mean more to him, obviously, it is his home, they're fighting for his home, for him, for his family. And like I said, it does make sense. If Fionn is to die, then it would only be Asher left, really, to be a valuable POV for this huge battle, unless something really different to our expectation occurs and Davos appears or something like that, but probably not. Even if Fionn's there, it still doesn't make for quite the coverage we'd expect for a battle of this size. So I really like this idea, I think it's more than cool, and I think you would agree. That then begs the question of whether this will actually go ahead. Will Fionn die before the Heart Tree and prior to the battle? Well, I can link this for you to either the first or second episode of 100 Questions of the Winds of Winter, I can't remember which, I think it was first, where myself and Emily, we spoke about uh, POVs that might die first and Fionn got brought up and I personally think this probably is how Fionn dies. I just think it fits in too well with his thematics and I think it'd be a worthy death for him. Like we said earlier, links to his crimes, links to what he's done. Although I do also suspect suspect that there would be a consequence or a reaction from his death and I'm not quite seeing it that hasn't materialized for me not necessarily a magical one from King's Blood or whatever although that is possible but just something else and that's not quite there yet but I'm hungry for it we will get there eventually I suppose it is possible more than possible that Stannis delays this until after the battle to better use Fionn's expertise 
maybe that could fulfill his obligation to serve the Starks in some way. That could be his final, I've done something for House Stark in defeating the Boltons, getting them out, but then you still have to pay for your crime eventually. And Stannis, he would keep up with that. He wouldn't let Theon off the hook just for having him out in a battle when he's got no choice anyway. So either before or after, yeah, I probably think that probably is it for Theon. But what do I know? It could very easily go the other way. If Stannis does delay, then there is the possibility of Rickon turning up and for some reason saying, no, don't do this, or I suppose there's an outside chance that Sansa could, but she's really not as connected to Theon in the books. We'll have to see if Ash has got something up her sleeve. Will there be something going on of the Iron Islands that will stay Stannis' hand? Maybe news of Euron gets to him and he thinks he can keep Theon for that reason. Maybe Asher even tells him about the Theon latecomer theory and Stannis thinks, okay, well, I could at least sow some discord amongst the Iron Islands if I'm going to have to eventually go against them. That's very possible. Or Bran could intervene if we think he's against this idea. Maybe these ravens are only the beginning. We have something else from him that intervenes in some way. I could do very little and just wildly speculate for you to be honest. I do think the service to the Starks thing is quite interesting. Obviously we saw that in the show. I don't think Fionn's going too far down south anytime soon. I don't even really think he's probably going to get back to the Iron Islands but service to the Starks that could be something we see. I don't know if someone intervenes and says no his life belongs to me. Again it could be Bran, it could be one of the other Starks. Maybe that's another idea that Asher comes up with. But if early death is not on the cards for Fionn and definitely swearing oaths to that family. I could see that being a fitting storyline. And I truly think that George can make it work either way. If he does die earlier on by the heart tree, whether pre or post battle, I think that would be a fitting ending. But I've got no doubt that we could also get a much larger storyline from Fionn and Winds and maybe even Dream, and that would work as well. George has the power to do both. If he does go, then I'd be most interested in the reaction of Asher, to be honest with you. It's something Bran might have to make peace with as well if he's not realising what he's doing or if he wasn't able to stop it when he wanted to or something like that that could have a big effect on him but ash is more important to me in this context what she does next and especially what worse she is to stannis after the battle if he is successful etc etc she's still definitely not beloved by the northerners and she doesn't really know how to get back her one idea of how to get back to the islands might be dead by then so i'd be very very interested in what her win storyline is going to be that's quite a hard one to predict if i'm honest and i'd want to see the emotional fallout of that if it was to happen which again I do think is likely because you remember Theon was present for that first scene of the series. We saw what Eddard Stark did. It'd just be really fitting for Theon to go the same way after Bran's influence of him being in that scene as well and just all these other things. So I think that might be where we're going. Now, I'm probably going to hold off from predicting and thinking about the larger battle and what's going to happen because we have done that before. I don't want to just repeat myself for you and we're definitely going to be coming back to it again, obviously. And we all know about the frozen pond and the phrase and we've already discussed in this episode the other things that might go into that. We could talk for a very, very long time about possibilities of what happens to Stannis after the battle. Whether he wins or loses, is he then ousted by the Northerners and replaced by Rickon or someone else once he's won their battle for them? Yes, I've gone through that before. You know, I definitely fall down on that side, but there's plenty and plenty to happen of him getting back to the wall and maybe ends up at the nightfall and we've got Shireen to come, his interactions with the others, him possibly being king of the others. That's a theory that's out there. So another one I probably lean towards as well. I think he's got more interactions with John coming etc 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 but i'm not going to go through all of those for you today because it'd take us another two hours and to be fair that's not very fion specific is it suffice to say i think we know this is a major major storyline coming for the book it is called the winds of winter we're up here in winter at the moment in the north that already started in dance it's going to continue through this book things are going to get very very bad all across i don't think stannis just winning winterfell will be the end of the north's problems not by far both on the scale of humanity and on the scale of magical things still coming from the north the fallout from john and everything like that there's so much to consider 
And even if something like the Targaryens or Euron might even get more page space, we all know that eventually this is the main plot. When it comes down to it, this is the point of the books. This war for humanity, that's taking place right here. We know it. Everyone knows it. It is coming. And this battle is coming. This is what this chapter really tells us, that we're closer than ever to the doorstep than before. We do have to do the frozen pond things and deal with the phrase first, but we are getting there. We did wait for so long in dance. We kept thinking, okay, now it's going to happen. Now it's going to happen. No, that snowstorm, it kept us still. But best thing about this chapter is showing us that Stannis and his army are still alive. The battle for Winterfell was still alive. The battle for the North, it will be coming soon. I think that's what makes this quite an enjoyable chapter because Stannis actually kind of wins. I mean, I said earlier, he gets a lot of bad news, but he also does quite a lot of good. He discovers the maester. He discovers the Karstarks. Again, none of it's good news, but it's better than nothing. He does have film with him. He obviously does have a plan in mind. I think we all knew really, even if he didn't have any of that, he was still going to go down swinging. He wasn't just going to stay in this tower and let the cold take him, no way. Luckily we're not going to see that, we are going to see a proper battle and this just makes you ever more thirsty for it, doesn't it? What an enjoyable, enjoyable chapter. Like we said earlier, this is having fun with Stannis, Stannis taking names, he's dropping bars, this is a great Stannis chapter, quite unlike anything we've seen before really. He's motivated, he's ready to go and he's got the tools to maybe them have some success. There'll be loss, I'm sure, there will be tragedy either before or after the battle. I don't think in the long term everything's going to go Stannis's way, but this battle, man, this battle is going to be great stuff. So like I said right at the top, we got a bit of everything in this chapter. We did have real deep feel emotional moments. We went back into his reunion of Asher. We went back into his experience of Ramsay. The connection with Jane, I think, was really interesting in this chapter. Him kind of weighing his own soul and saying, oh, no, actually, I did do this really good thing. I know I haven't forgotten all the bad things, but I did do this really good thing as well, and him wanting some credit for that. That's a really interesting angle that we probably didn't suspect of him, given what we saw in Dance. We did talk about Jane a lot. That is very, very interesting. The possible interactions of Aya, that's another great hook to get us involved. We're now just laying down these tracks for the Stark's return. We had the magical element, and as I said, we've had lots of Stannis. And not just Stannis, but the politics or what's going on within this camp as well. I think that's probably the thing I want to know most about coming up next. Whoever has the next chapter, whether it's Asher or Fionn, I want to see what's going on with this camp. Remember, they were gathering outside the tower. They've had enough almost. It seems like they might be on the brink of mutiny and saying, like, enough is enough. We need to know what's going on. Why have you arrested all these Karstarks? Are we just going to stay here and freeze or what's the deal? So I'm looking forward to seeing Stannis' speech or whatever it is, the explanation. I know we all very much enjoyed seeing the Karstarks getting their comeuppance because they are a bunch of knobheads, save for Alice of course. And to be honest, in these books, we don't often get the chance to scupper the portrayal before it happens. Normally we have to wait until after for someone to pay their dues. This time we've actually prevented some portrayal. Does not come up a lot, so that's pretty cool. Nice one Stannis, that's a point in your column. Sorry Karstarks, you're in trouble. This will obviously have a knock-on effect on what's happening with the other Karstarks, including Cregan up in the wall, should he still be alive in his ice cell. So that's very, very interesting as well. I think we'll leave it there, to be honest with you. I obviously can't have my fan on while I'm recording here. It's getting pretty hot, so I won't hang on to you for too long. I'm just going to say what a great chapter it was. I say that every week, because of course they're all great chapters. They were written by George, what are you expecting? But yeah, this one I really, really do like, even though we don't even move. Fionn is just chained to a wall the whole time. Really, it is kind of a catch-up. It's a camera chapter but it's really enjoyable i love knowing about the 
formation of this battle and the allies and everything going on with this war that's my personal favorite parts but it's got something for everybody it's got jane it's got the magic it's got the deep core characterization and emotional stuff Fionn's delivering everything and he does have more to offer i don't know how many more chapters we get of him i don't know if we see the phrase end through his eyes that'd be good i don't know if he is involved in the battle it might be we have one more Fionn chapter we might not have any i mean that's very very possible isn't it i think we probably do because george is so good with him and maybe maybe we've got five or six or seven and he actually lasts all the way through the book and we have loads more i don't think any of us are going to turn that down because it is such an interesting character how far he's come what's happened to him what he's done now very very complex issues and if he does ever reunite with bran and service of starks and saving winterfell and all those kind of things i mean the possibility to end this george could do anything with this guy i think we're all looking forward to it See, every time I finish these chapters, I think I could have gone for another quarter of an hour just talking about that chapter. There is always, always more to talk about. So I'm sorry if I've missed anything out. If you think I have, you just let me know. I'll get back to you because I'm always leaving stuff on the cutting room floor. Trust me. But this time around, that's it. We've got to cut it off somewhere. We have one chapter left. We are sticking with one family. We're going all the way back from the frozen north to the heat of marine. Slaver's Bay, we're returning to Victorian. Yes, you might remember that History of Westeros actually started off these preview chapters with Victorian. We were a little bit late to the party, so we left that one for now instead. Which I actually quite like that we're going all the way around here. Now back to the beginning, back to Slaver's Bay. We can tie that little bow on things. It is a very, very short chapter. I don't think it's going to be the final version of what we get but we work with what we've got and there's still some stuff to discuss about the battle and Victorian some of which we were able to discern through Tyrion and Barristan but some stuff completely new to us mainly surrounding Dragonbinder the Horn yeah you know there's a lot to talk about <laughs> Victorian and that whole Battle of the Marine and it's also nice to finish off talking Battle of Ice one week and Battle of Fire the next because we do know that's the two big things coming now what I might do if there's time either with that Victorian episode or maybe sometime after is I might go through everyone that we didn't get and just give some quick thoughts on each just a reminder of where everyone is and then some things to think about about what could be coming at the beginning in their early chapters so off the top of my head that would be Melisandre, John obviously, Bran, Asher, Brienne, Jamie, Erohotar, Sam and Daenerys am I missing anyone? Probably am but I can't think of them either way we might be fitting that in somewhere so look for that either next week or in the coming weeks. And in the meantime, as I mentioned earlier, myself and Emily will be recording part three of 100 questions about the Winds of Winter. So much Winds of Winter talk for you. Another 10 questions from 21 to number 30. So lots of different topics to discuss there, as I told you about earlier. Remember to get your own questions in, get your own answers in. And yes, there's just plenty, plenty coming up on the aisle. So I hope you enjoyed that chapter. I hope you'll join us again. I definitely hope it's sunny where you are. If you're listening to this outside, great. If you're listening to this inside, get outside it's nice and hot one final question will i talk about the playoffs more no i'd better not i better let you go go and enjoy the sunshine i'll resist this time even though i could give another 45 minutes to an hour to three hours on the nba playoffs but i will resist for now only for now thank you everyone see you next time